honor to be here. Thank you for that fee. Uh, we are privileged to be amongst you. Uh, the first time I was here was in 1991. Uh, came and visited this uh, church here. I was in a, an elders meeting, pastors meeting, wandered around. I thought this place just doesn't end. So it's been a really, really long time. Uh, one of my, uh, the best pastor I've ever met um, would very easily be Peter Reynolds. He is uh, a dear friend of mine. We love Peter and Barbie. And I have said to many people many times that if I had an, an unresolved issue in my life that I couldn't come to resolve in, I guess that's what that means, um, I would seek out Peter Reynolds. He's just that sort of man to me uh, and to us as a couple. And we dearly love uh, what God has done in this church over many years that we've watched it. And I just remember just walking the building, just sensing the presence of God back in 91, the love of God. And you're just like, wow, this is an amazing, amazing place. So I want to um, have my wife speak just for a couple minutes, tell you a little bit about ourselves. Her name is Randy, that's R-A-N-D-I, and she is a girl. In our country, <laughs> you know, Randy is typically a guy's name, yeah. and I don't think it's typically a name in your country. No. So this is my beautiful wife, Randy. At least not a good name. <laughs> so my name is Randy. We've been married uh, 36 years, and we have four kids, a 31-year-old girl, a 28-year-old boy who has given us two beautiful red-headed grandsons, and then we had surprise twins who are now 22 years old that Dan and Fee used to take care of all the time because everybody else was afraid to. <laughs> yeah, but they did it. But I've been a Christian since I was 17 years old. When I was a teenager, I was really boy crazy, and uh, I was bringing home these boyfriends, and my parents just really didn't like any of these boys that I brought home. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll get a religious boy because I really loved my mom and dad, and I wanted to bring somebody home that they liked. And I thought, I'll go to a church, and I'll get a religious boy. They'll like him. So I went to this, I heard about this big church that had a huge singles ministry. So I went on a Saturday night, and I walked in, and oh, there were hundreds of guys. <laughs> and I thought, I have arrived here. This is great. So, yes. And so they began to worship, and these people began to sing to God like they knew him. They began to sing to Jesus like, they, like he was right in the room with them. And I closed my eyes, and I began to sing, and I had a vision of Jesus that said, it's time to come home. And I got born again right then. And so I walked out of there a completely different person. My parents knew. Uh, I en ended up eventually meeting Tom, and we got together. And uh, so and that married. was this, and married. So that was the start of my journey. But isn't it wonderful how God knows just how to speak to your heart? He wired you, and He knows just how to speak to your heart. So we've been pastoring since about 1989, I believe, and we've been in several different churches. And I just want to say the reason why you're in this room is because you love people. You know, if your heart is called to be a pastor or a shepherd, it's because you love people. And one of the verses that I think about all the time, it's in Hebrews 6, verse 10. This is from the ESV. For God is not so unjust as to overlook, overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. In the NIV, it says, for God is not unjust. He will not forget the love you have shown him as you love his people. 
And that's really what it's all about. It comes down to you, you love as bride. You love people. You want to give your life for them. And there's a lot of ups, wonderful ups, and there's a lot of downs to that. But that al should always stay our focus, shouldn't it? You know, as we love the people of God, the people that he purchased with his very own, with very own life. And so that's just something I think about a lot because there's times when you do feel like, I'm doing all this and for what? You know, I'm, it doesn't seem to be working or, you know, you encounter difficult people, but it's all for loving him by loving his people. Okay. Um, you know, this, this today I would say is, is loving people really well. That's what it is all about. <clears throat> I'm assuming if you're in this room, you are either uh, pastoral or want to be. So if you're not and you want to be, be pastoral. There, you have it now. Um, part of uh, just my quick testimony, my parents were uh, divorced at four. Uh, my mother abandoned the family and uh, moved many, many miles away. <clears throat> my birth mother was eventually married nine different times had multiple boyfriends, multiple live-ins, just kind of a chaotic upbringing. Um, and fortunately, uh, I was raised by my father and my stepmother, and they remained married up until the time of her passing, probably seven years ago. But I was not raised in a Christian home, uh, was not a Christian in any way. I was a reviler of God, uh, got uh, saved in about the same time my beautiful wife did in the uh, middle 70s in a very, very large church in St. Louis. The power of God was in it, and it was uh, an amazing, amazing transformation that happened in me. I actually felt, <clears throat> probably for the first time in my life, I was accepted, I was loved um, perfectly, and uh, it's been for 36 years of marriage and, I don't know, maybe pushing 40 years as a Christian, I keep finding the depths of Jesus sweeter and sweeter. And um, I'm 57 years old. There are some in this room that are that old and more senior, and there's certainly lots of young people in this room. And I knew as a young person, I just felt on the inside that somehow, some way, I was just, I didn't even know what it meant. Honestly, I didn't know what it meant because I had no church background. I didn't know there was a John 3.16, much less how to quote it. I knew nothing. I didn't know any of the stories about Jesus from the Bible. But I just felt like in some way I was going to be serving him. But I was in a church of 2,000, and all the young people felt that. So I thought, well, it, we all can't be in the ministry, quote-unquote, paid up front speaking. I thought, well, you're crazy, so therefore I must crazy. And I just dismissed the fact of, you know, can't be that. And I, for the first many years of my life, I knew... I was not called to be a pastor. It was not my personality. It was not my gifting. Um, has anybody ever seen or heard of an American television show for children long, long ago called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Anybody ever seen it? Yeah. And I thought that was a pastor. You wear a cardigan, I guess I'm wearing some kind of a jumper. But you wear, yeah, oops. <laughs> anybody calls me Mr. Rogers, we're gonna talk. Mr. Rogers was kind of kind and talked slow, and he just dealt with children, and it was just the whole thing was slow and passive, and, and my understanding, which was completely wrong, that pastors were just kind of weak, insipid, soft, 
um, maybe even, you know, some of, you know, almost, and again, I, I apologize, but just so you understand my thinking, that maybe pastors were even a little effeminate. They were just kind of weak people. And I had a, a <laughs> is that okay, Fee? I'm sorry. I shouldn't be saying that. But it's just my understanding. And I, I had a prophetic dimension to my life, a prophetic edge, and I wanted myself to change, and I wanted other people to change, and I thought pastors were just handholders. And all he did was, it's okay, stay that way, you know, be a problem, stay a problem. And it was just something on the inside. I just wanted to grow, and I wanted to see people grow. And I just had a, a completely wrong understanding of what a pastor was. And God broke into my life, and uh, there was a couple of different pastors that I saw. There was a gentleman who came to St. Louis. His name is Mike Stevens. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Mike Stevens? Mike and Penny Stevens. They came from England, moved to St. Louis, and they were our pastors for five years. And I thought, that is a pastor. I can do that. I mean, Mike was just dynamic. He moved in the Holy Spirit. He was powerful. He, he was just an amazing, amazing guy. And for the first time, I thought, on the inside, because I really, I love God with all my heart, and I love people. But I just, I had a Mr. Rogers impression of what a pastor was. And if you don't know Mr. Rogers, YouTube it. I'm sure you can find something. You say, no, I don't want to be like that either. But he's a wonderful man. I think actually, maybe he was a Presbyterian pastor. I think that was part of his testimony. Wonderful, godly man. Um, so if you could, I just want to open your Bibles up to John chapter 10. I want you to uh, just walk through just, this is Jesus' statement about himself, and he's speaking. So I love I love the gift of pastoring. Uh, I've, I believe with all of my heart. Um, somebody actually shared this with me a long time ago, that being a pastor is God's highest calling on the earth. And he, and he explained it. He said, he asked my wife and I to look after his children. And he, he and his wife came to me and said, they're, they're going on vacation somewhere. And he said, my children are the most important things in my life. I don't trust anybody with my kids. They are so precious. And if anybody were ever to look after my children, I would have the utmost confidence in them. And he said, that's why we've asked you and your wife. So I felt very honored. And he said, that's exactly how God feels about his kids. He doesn't ask just anybody to look after his children because he loves them that much. He's protective of them. He cares for them. His eye is towards them. And so I began to understand just how important, how beautiful um, the gift of pastoring is. In John chapter 10, verse 7, the scripture says this, reading from the NIV, therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep 
know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. That's me and you, most of us. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And Jesus, I mean, obviously he was a prophet, obviously he was an apostle, he was an evangelist, but he, he his own declaration of himself, he says, I am the shepherd. So if you want to know what a shepherd looks like, how did Jesus love people? Just this last Sunday, I spoke in our church in St. Louis, and I just encouraged them. I said, you know, I just wanted people to remember, and we, uh, the congregation that uh, my wife and I have the privilege of serving, it's, I wouldn't call it an older congregation, uh, maybe 125, 150 people, uh, total people. And it, there's many people that we've known for 30, 35 years. People, many, many people in our church were pastored by Bren Jones in St. Louis. Um, we had the privilege of being, you know, in the church with Bren many, many years ago. If that's not a name, don't worry about it, he's just a wonderful man. And so there's many people in our church that are very seasoned. They've heard amazing preachers from around the world. But it's so easy at times to get disconnected from Jesus and to forget about the busyness of life and this and that. And it just pulls us. And so this last Sunday, I just encouraged people to remember what Jesus is like. And I said, please, can you just do this over the next three, four weeks? Get back into the Gospels and watch and see how did Jesus love people? How did he lead people? How did he speak to them? What irritated him? What didn't irritate him? What drew him? What was the perfume that just drew Jesus in? Read the Gospels and remind yourself, this is what he's like. Not what he was like, what he is like. Those same things that drew him still draw him. Those same things that offended him still offend him. And Lord, I just, I want to exemplify you. I want to look like you and loving your people really, really well. Dan already said, um, he used the word uh, poimen. Did you mention the word poimen? So, okay, that's right. He used the word pastor in Ephesians 4. The word pastor in most translations, uh, it only appears once, twice, three times, depending on your translation in the New Testament. And the word pastor in the Greek, and this will be the last time we speak about Greek today, and I don't do that. Um, the word pastor in the New Testament is the word poimen, P-O-I-M-E-N, poimen. And that word that is used in Ephesians 4 is translated, it absolutely is the same word as shepherd. It is shepherd. The translators chose to take that word and call it pastor. But the word in Ephesians 4, apostles, teachers, evangelists, pastor is shepherd. It is a shepherd, 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 shepherd. That is the Greek word, and it appears throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The translators, for whatever reason, chose to call it pastor, but it is a, a man who looks after God's sheep. It is a shepherd. And uh, I don't know that we'll get to it today. I would love to if we have time, but I want you to make a note if you're making note. Um, if you have paper or you can let your fingers dance across the electronics, um, I would love for you to read today, after this sessions are over, this afternoon or tonight, before you go to bed, would you look at Ezekiel 34? It's a powerful, powerful passage. Like I said, I don't think we're going to have time to go through it today. But it's 
It is God's heart for his people. And in this passage, it's kind of a, it's, uh, well, it's not kind of, it is. It's, it's a negative. Um, God is very angry about at the shepherds in Israel and how they are treating the people. And he goes and makes many declarations how much God loves his people. And he is so angry with the shepherds who are looking after themselves and getting rich and um, rebuking the people and treating them horribly. And he says, you know what? I don't need all you shepherds. I will be their shepherd. I will care for them. I will protect them. I will bind up their wounds. If you're not going to do it, I'll do it. And that's how much God loves his people. He says, if pastors aren't doing what they're doing, I will do it myself. But the church of Jesus Christ suffers for the lack of shepherds, for the lack of people who will actually love people beautifully and lead them into green pasture, because that's what pastors do, is they take people and they lead them into green pastures. You think, what are they supposed to do? Bring people into health. Feed them, love them, protect them, uh, adjust them. But we don't, we don't beat sheep. We don't, you know, it's, it's not about, um, we came from a, a system, a church system, where in all honesty, it was all about the leaders. It's just the way it was. The leaders were the big shots. The leaders were the ones where all the focus was on them. <clears throat> it was completely out of whack. It was, I think, uh, very painful for us to watch and observe. Uh, but we learned a lot from, you can't learn so much from the negative. And we can read so much in the Bible, you can learn so much from, I don't want to be like Judas. I don't want to be like Absalom. I don't want to be like King Saul in the Old Testament. I want to have God's heart. And coming out of the ministry that we were in, it, you know, it helped us so much to see, Lord, we want to love you. And we want to represent you. And we want to love people really, really well. So in this first session, I would like you to turn to uh, a different book, a funny book. It's turn to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. It's towards the front of the bus. And when I went to Bible school in the 80s up in West Yorkshire, my wife and I have had the privilege of living in England twice. We were in a town called Keithley. Some of you will know that. We had absolutely no clue what people were saying to us, so we just nodded and smiled. Yeah. It was the funniest thing. Oh, we got some stories. Never mind. We, my wife and I fell in love with England when we were in West Yorkshire. And we felt in our heart we wanted to live here for the rest of our lives. We were able to come back at another point and live like at Hertfordshire that Dan mentioned earlier. But we just fell in love with England and the English people. And I honestly, to this day, still feel more at home in England than I do the United States. I know... Uh, I stick out like a sore thumb, and I was told that by some English people, but that's okay. I still love England. I can be a sore thumb. It's all right. But when we went to Bible school in Keithley, in West Yorkshire, in England in the 80s. Uh, the the uh, Bible school was fantastic, and the guy said he's going to do a book study, Bible study, on the book of Ruth. And I thought, book of Ruth? What? You know, like, that doesn't count. You know, and here, here, you know, you ever think how it's just silly you think and how just silly you think? I could say other things. You know, this is the way I was. I was, I was in my 20s, and I thought, you know, I love Genesis. I love Exodus, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, armies, judges, blood, guts, fighting, win, win, win. You know, and I thought, I, this, I, honestly, I wouldn't say this because, you know, I didn't want to appear like I'm about to appear. 
But I thought, you know, isn't it kind of God that he threw in two books for the girls? You know, he threw in the book of Esther, the book of Ruth. You know, it's just nice so the ladies can have a couple of books of their own. You know, enjoy that stuff. You know, that love stories, ah. It's a, true, it's a true story. I think, well, Ruth, come on, get, get some judges in there. You can see my pastoral bent was really strong early on. <laughs> so this guy, it's only four chapters long, which helps me. I like that. Nice short book, I can read that. And as we began studying this book, I fell in love with it. I saw that the gospel is presented in, in Ruth. God's heart is presented in Ruth. And it actually, I would have to say, it's probably my favorite book in the Bible. Just God's heart has just opened up to me. And I just, I, if I'm ever having a down day, I go straight to the book of Ruth. You can call me, you know, whatever. I love the book of Ruth. I am a convert. And I would, if I could, I'd like to have my wife come up and read the book of Ruth. She reads really, really well. But I want to have her read chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, and I'm going to give a little background on it in just a second. All of this? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who worked for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I, don't, I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. 
Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is chapter 2. Uh, just, I want to give you a really, really quick overview. Um, this is a, a time in Israel's history is extremely difficult. Was, the, chapter 1 in the first couple of verses actually says it's during the time of the judges. Um, in the last verse of the previous book, the book of Judges, says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a bleak time, a bad time, and the story begins with a family of four, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion, two sons. There's a famine in Bethlehem, and because of the famine, this family of four, Ruth, I'm sorry, Naomi and Elimelech, leave Israel, leave Bethlehem, and go to a despised place called Moab. You don't go to Moab, think of, of, of Al-Qaeda, think of ISIS, it's very dangerous, very bad. You can read about Moab. In fact, in Judges 3, a left-handed guy named Ehud had a little fight with a king named Eglon. If you know, if you know your Old Testament, Moab oppressed Israel for 18 years. There's huge animosity between the Israelites and Moab. You could go anywhere. You can go to Ireland, you can go to Scotland, you can go to Wales, but you do not go to Moab. It is a despised place, idol worshipers, horrible things happen in that place and this family of four go there in chapter one and after a while the two boys do something you can't do that's even worse they married two moabite women the son malon and chilion they married these moabite ladies horrible can't do it bad against the law after 10 years both boys die the husband dies and now you have this widow named naomi who appears in chapter two Naomi comes to her senses and she's like, what in the world am I doing in Moab? She says she heard that God had come to the rescue of his people in Israel. There's no more famine. She says in her mind, I have to go back home to Israel. That's God's land. What am I doing here? And she begins to move back towards Israel. While she's on her, on her way in chapter 1, she comes to her senses and she's like, what am I doing? I'm taking two Moabite women named Orpah, one daughter-in-law, and Ruth, the other daughter-in-law. I'm taking these two ladies back. No one's going to accept them. Their skin color is different. Their clothes are different. Their accent is different. Everything about them screams Moabite. They'll have no future, no place. And just kind of, it dawns on her, my life is a wreck. My husband is dead. My two sons are dead. I've got two Moabite daughter-in-laws. I'm ruined. And so she talks to her daughters-in-law, Orpah, and talks her into going back to Moab, finding a husband. But then she talks to, to Ruth, 
this Moabite young woman, and she says, you've got to go back. There's no future for you. And if you'll read in chapter 1 on your own time, probably some of the most beautiful covenant language in the entire Bible of Ruth says, where you go, I will go. May God deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates from me, from you, your, my mother-in-law, Naomi, I will be with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And it brings us right up to chapter 2. It's just a beautiful story. Chapter 2 begins as Randy just read it. And Naomi is uh, her mother-in-law. I uh, don't know how old she was, but Ruth said, hey, look, you stay at home. I'm going to go out and work in the fields, which is extremely dangerous. Ruth is a Moabite. She looks different, sounds different. Everything about her clothes screams Moabite. It's a very dangerous place. And an Israelite actually could stone a Moabite. They don't belong in this country. It's very, very dangerous. But Ruth, this young, God-fearing woman, starts on her own. She says, you know what? You stay home to her mother-in-law. I'll go work in the fields. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 2. And I want to just walk through quickly chapter 2. And it, she encounters a man named Boaz, who is a type and shadow of Jesus in the Old Testament. He, I won't get, go into it today, he's a kinsman redeemer, which is what Jesus is for us. There's all kinds of beautiful language. I can send you some notes later on if you're interested. But Ruth walks into a man's life named, into a man's field named Boaz. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1 in chapter 2. We're just going to walk through it quickly. And I just want to see, Boaz is how you love people. This is what a shepherd looks like, is how Boaz treats Ruth. Ruth is a foreigner. She's an alien. She's an outsider. She's um, vulnerable. Anybody could do anything to her, and there's basically no law against harming a Moabite. She is completely exposed, and she's just going to step out and hope that she doesn't get killed, hope she doesn't get abused, hope she doesn't get taken advantage of, and actually get some food and take it back to my Jewish mother-in-law. That's her hope. And she steps out in verse 1, and it says that this man, she um, stepped into a man's field, a man named Boaz, and it says that he was a man of standing. And that doesn't translate all that great for us in the English, but he's from the clan of Elimelech, who is her father, deceased father-in-law. He's a man of standing. And what that meant was Boaz is an extremely wealthy man. He was an elder, he was a senior man in the area that he lived in, Bethlehem, which is their hometown. Anybody recognize the town named Bethlehem? Good people come from Bethlehem. Boaz is from Bethlehem. So it says right out of the bat that this, this man, Boaz, who's an older guy, is a man of standing. He's extremely wealthy. He has something to give to people. And I just want to say that if you're a shepherd, if you're pastoral, you are an extremely wealthy person. You have something on the inside that is the treasure of heaven that people are looking for and need. You are a wealthy person. You are a person of standing. God has entrusted riches to you as a shepherd because you will carry God's heart to them. And so often, I, coming from my own background, I was extremely insecure. I was just crippled with fears on the inside, and I thought I had nothing. And yet God was building in something into me as a shepherd, a treasure trove that people who are dying and hungry and in need need what I have, need what my wife and I offer them. 
So I just want to start out by saying, if you're a shepherd, you're an extremely wealthy person. Gold is on the inside of you. And if I don't recognize it, I'm probably not going to be too quick to try and share it because I don't think I have anything to give away. But Boaz, as a type and shadow of Jesus, is extremely wealthy. Anybody who comes into his field is going to be blessed. Anybody who comes into the field and sphere of your life is going to be blessed if you recognize the value that God has placed inside of you. To think rightly of yourself as a shepherd and a pastor of God. Recognize who you are. You're a resource for others. And, and there's a, um, one of the scriptures that always challenged me was the parable of the talents where Jesus came. Remember the parable of the talents? Gave ten, five, and one, and one buried it and said, oh, I was afraid. And that, that was me for many years. I didn't want to step out because of my insecurities and fears. And to realize God has given me so much, I must step out. Otherwise, I'm being a poor steward of the gift that God has given me. And it's how do I do that? What do I do? In verse 2 and 3, it talks a little bit more. Yep. Here we go. Sorry, he's given me full reign to interrupt. I was just thinking. Not interrupt. I'm add. sorry, add. <laughs> but one of the things I clarify. I think about frequently is, you know, you, you, we are so quick to see our own inadequacies and to see our own faults and our own failures. And, and it's, we aren't perfect. We aren't perfect. But I think the devil likes to highlight those in our eyes because he knows if he can get us off base, it won't just affect us it'll affect the people that we involved with. So it has a multiplication effect. So when we recognize who we are in Christ and de you know, remind ourselves all the time of our identity and what he's done for us, that it will help deflect those things that the devil, those fiery darts that the devils will, devil will shoot at us. Because if we believe him, we shoot ourselves in the foot before, we're even, you know, before we even start our day, and it will affect so many more people. So I don't want to say that I feel like he attacks us more, but we really have to be on guard all the time. We have to be vigilant about, I was just reading um, Proverbs 4.23, and in the ESV it says, be vigilant over guarding your heart. You know, we need to watch what we take in. We need to watch how we think, watch how we speak, because it doesn't just affect uh, myself, my spouse, our family, but it affects all the people that we minister to and come into contact with. Beautiful, thank you. In verse 2 and 3, uh, Ruth walks out with Naomi's encouragement, her mother-in-law, begins uh, working towards going into a field, and steps into verse 2 and 3, this man named Boaz's field. And verse 4, Boaz comes in from the city. Boaz is riding in on his chariot, his horse, his mule, whatever he's riding, and he rides in and to his property. I, I just get a picture of him, just a long dirt road, and there he sees his field and all his workers. And verse 4, it says this, Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. And this is what he said, The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you, they answered. Can I just say this? A shepherd is a blessing to everyone. So many times, I, I've worked, I worked in the, the marketplace for many years. I owned a couple of businesses, worked for uh, non-Christians. And so often, you work into the, as soon as the boss shows up, everybody wants to get busy. Anybody ever had that you know, thought? It's like, you know, you're doing something. And of course, I know nobody surfs on the net and does stuff like that while they're at work. Nobody's checking Facebook because we're not those kind of people. But as soon as the boss shows up, straighten up, you know, here he comes. I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm doing the work. 
Boaz walks in, and it seems like that's not how he is at all. He's not, hey, I'm watching you. Hey, 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 what'd you do today? Let me see. Did you produce? Let me see your sales. Where's your numbers? Boaz isn't like that. Immediately, he rides up on his horse. He's like, hey, blessing to everybody. How you doing today? And the people aren't shocked, like, whoa. He must have had a good day in the stock market today. He must have made some sales. Are you kidding me? Boaz? Who's he trying to fool? That's not the, because what do they, the people give the immediate greeting. Hey, the Lord bless you back, Boaz. He's a, he's a kind man. Words of greeting, words of blessing are on his, on his, as soon as you see Boaz, he's got a smile on his face. He's got blessing on his face. Good things are coming out. The people are used to it. They're not like, what happened? Did you get an inheritance today? Did you win the lottery? What's up with this guy? Mr. You know, has anybody ever heard of Eeyore? You know, it might be rainy for it might be sunny for you, but it's rainy for me. You know, Eeyore's just nothing good ever because it's always mopey, whiny, horrific. Boaz is just the opposite. And as a as a shepherd, as a pastor, can you imagine walking up to Jesus? And Jesus has a frown on his face. I'm just really down today. Nobody likes me, and I don't think I like anybody. It's really just not going well for me. Can you imagine Jesus being like that? Jesus, hey, who's sick? I want to bless. You got a problem? Can I help you? You need money? We got, some, we got talk. Well, maybe not Judas, but there's a guy with some money. He's going to help pay. Anytime you came into the presence of Jesus, there was life. There was enthusiasm, there was blessing on his lips, kindness falling from his lips. When you met Jesus, it was the best day of your life. With Boaz, when he walked in, came in from work, he's not checking to make sure that all the minions are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Blessing, greeting, bless all of you. And they're so used to it, hey, bless you back. We, had a, we're, we love having the boss here because you're an awesome owner of the field. We're safe here, and we like what you do and how you do it. That's the kind of leader and owner and man that Boaz was. He initiated and he spoke life. Boaz is an amazing guy. He's a shepherd that the people loved. It wasn't just a good day this one day. In verse 5, Scripture says this in chapter 2. Then Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? He's riding in, looks over his field, and he says, what's your name? Jeff? That's Tom. Can you be in charge today? Okay. You're in charge today. So I'm riding into town, and I say, Jeff, you're an awesome guy. You're an amazing guy. Can you tell me who this lovely lady is over here? Because I don't recognize her. Boaz is the type of man, he knows everybody in the room. He knows everybody's name. He knows everything about everybody. Why? Because he's a shepherd. He knows your wife's name. He knows your husband's name. He knows your kid's name. He knows when you're unemployed. He knows when you're struggling. Because Boaz is a shepherd. He knows the details in people's life. He's got all these people in his field, and he goes to the overseer, and he says, who's that? I don't know her. What's your name? Emma. Emma. I'm Tom. Okay. 
you can be Ruth for just a little bit. Boaz, just come in from the city. He's got business on his mind. How are things going home, at home? And yet his eye is attentive to the details in life. Remember when Jesus was speaking to the people and he's, don't be anxious, don't worry. He said, the sparrow cannot fall from the sky that my father doesn't know about. He knows everything that's going on in your life. And that's a shepherd's heart. I want to know the details that are going on. Who is this lovely young lady? I could be worried about the bottom line. I could be worried about the tithes and the offerings. Who are the ushers doing their job? Hey, why, aren't, you know, why is the sound system up? The lights are off. He's not worried about that. The shepherd, who's she? She's a guest. She's new. I want to know about her. That's what a shepherd is like. He's not too busy for people. Verse 6 and 7. The overseer, that's Jeff, was that correct? The overseer, Jeff, that's me and you. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite. And remember, a despised person, not accepted in Israel in any way, shape, or form. Think Al-Qaeda, scary person. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite. Now, you're a lovely person, Emma. This is nothing personal now. All good, all good. Good person. See, it's going to get so much better for you. It's, it starts low, and then it gets so much better. It's, gonna, it's going good. It's going to work out really well for you today. She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. That's her mother-in-law. She said, this is what Ruth said, she said, please let me glean or gather or reap and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. It's harvest time. She, Emma, Ruth, she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. In verses 6 and 7, what I love about Boaz is, you know what, he doesn't, he's not interested in it. Hey, no, 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 don't bother with the details. I don't care about that. What is she doing here? I, I don't care about her story. I don't care about what's going on. Why is she, who gave her authority? Jeff, did you tell her she could work here? This is my field. Shouldn't you check with me first? This is a kind man. He's a shepherd. And you know what he wants? He wants to get the story about this person before he starts making judgments, before he starts exercising his authority. I want to know about this lovely woman, and I trust you. Can you please tell me about her? Because that's God's heart towards people. A shepherd is interested in people's story. I'm not worried about the number count, how many people were in the, in the church today, um, how many people raised their hand, how many people. Yes, it's, it can be all important, but you know what? There's a guest in the field today. What's her story? Tell me about her. What do you know about Emma? Because I actually are interested in people. And that is a pastor. That's a shepherd. Verse 8 and 9. So Boaz said to Ruth, so now the owner, Mr. Own the Field, gets involved. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, who speaks to a Moabite like that? Who speaks to somebody he doesn't even know? Somebody who loves people. 
She's a nobody and she's in danger. She could be in huge trouble for working as a Moabite in a Jewish field. Hey, lady. He doesn't call her, hey, lady. Hey, you. He doesn't call her you. He says, if you're working where I belong, you're a daughter. That's a, that is a father, which is a shepherd, which is a pastor. I care about people. He doesn't know whether she's corrupt, whether she's going to steal, whether she's going to take advantage of him. I'm going to assume the best about you, Emma. I'm going to assume the best. I'm going to believe the best about you. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Basically, pay attention. Watch what they're doing. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Why? Because you're a Moabite. All my workers, they don't fully represent, they're not maybe as gracious as I am. So I went in protection for you. Don't you touch this girl. Don't harm her in any way. And whenever you're thirsty, get a drink from the water jars, the men of field. A shepherd speaks kindly. A shepherd is not gruff with people. He's not boss. He's not in charge. I'm a big person. You're a little person. I'm the pastor here. Excuse me. You're sitting in my seat, sir. Could you move towards the back? Now, do you have a pass for the front seat? Do I know you well enough? Can I check the tithe records? I've been in a churches. I've been in churches like that. I've been in churches like that. Let me check the tithe records to see if you're current. True story. My friend Daniel knows it's true. Not Boaz, not Jesus, not shepherds who carry God's heart. I'm not going to speak gruffly to you. I'm going to afford you family status immediately. Emma, my daughter, I, I just want you to know, you know what? It's dangerous out there. Don't go into anybody else's field. Stay here. And you know what? I've already told all the, all the workers here who work for me to be kind to you and not to harm you. You're going to be, with me, you're safe. What is mine, you're safe. Don't go anywhere else. And you know what? If you're thirsty, just ask somebody. It'll be provided for you. I'm gonna, I just, you're okay. Just relax, enjoy the day. You have to do a little bit of work. But there's nothing gruff. There's nothing harsh. There's nothing condescending. He made a place for her. He protected her, uh, provided for her. What an amazing guy. And she responds and says, wow, what have I, what have I done to deserve this? And we pick it up in verse 11. And this is, again, it's a pastor, it's a shepherd, it's Jesus. Boaz said, Boaz replied, I've heard this from Jeff. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi. I've been told all about what you've done for her. 
since the death of your husband. Why? Because she's in pain, you're in pain, and you know what, instead of being consumed with your pain, I've heard, Ruth, that you're an amazing woman, and you're more concerned about your mother-in-law, you're more concerned about somebody else than about your own needs. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people who you did not know before. A shepherd honors people with words. He affirms people. The world may tear you down. Your own natural mother and father, your, your spouse, they may tear you down. But when you come into my sphere, noble words will come out of my mouth towards you. I will tell you what you're really like. I will tell you who you really are. I found all about you. And I spoke... I'm going to speak faith to you. He understood who his blessing was from, and I'm here to bless others under God's wings. And verse 12, if you can read this, this is amazing. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. A shepherd... Make sure that Jesus receives all the reward. Emma comes into my field, and you know what he says? Hey, you know what? You're actually, this is your lucky day, young lady, because you know what? I'm really wealthy. I've got a really big field. I've got a lot of stuff. And you know what? If you're with me, I got stuff. You're, you, know, you do good, and we can get a relationship. That's not what, what Boaz says. He says, you know what? When you stepped into my field, it's the Lord's field. It's not my field. I'm not a wealthy man. You've come underneath the Lord's wings when you stepped into my life. And as a shepherd, it's to understand these people aren't mine, and we may talk more about that. The people aren't mine. The workers aren't mine. The land isn't mine. The church isn't mine. I don't own anybody. When you step into my sphere, it's the Lord's, not mine. I hold all things like this. And that's how a shepherd holds people. They're not my people. I haven't died for anybody. I haven't sacrificed my life, my good life, for anybody else. When you step into this field, Emma, you're in the Lord's field, not Boaz's field. He doesn't say, hey, I got the title. It's, it's the Lord's. When you step here, you're underneath the Lord's wings. In verse 14 to 16, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. And she ate all she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, this is actually my favorite part of the whole story in verse chapter 2. As she got up to glean, went out to work, gather amongst the, the, the harvesters. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. And this is what he said. Let her gather among the sheaves, and don't reprimand her. Don't correct her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So here's, here's Emma. She's taking a break. It's lunchtime. She's had her cucumber sandwich. Whatever. One of those things. We don't do that so much. <laughs> cucumber sandwich. You had some squash. Do you still have squash? Ribena? Yeah. Cool stuff, yeah. I lived here. I know some of the words. So she's had her ribena. She's had her cucumber sandwich. She's had some crisps. Yeah. 
Don't mess with me. <laughs> and he says, okay, all right, work time, every time. So he goes to the workers, and he goes to Jeff. And he says, look, this young lady, she hasn't, didn't get a whole lot in her, her bag to take home of, of the, the harvest this morning. Her bag is a little light. So this is what I want you to do, Jeff. I want you to take all the guys around you. And they have a line of harvesters, and they're walking through the field of harvesters. And the gleaners, the ladies, are behind them picking up the harvest, picking up the, the bits of wheat and whatnot. So the guys are threshing, and they're throwing back the stalks that are full of the grain behind them, and the ladies are behind them collecting the grains. Does that make sense? That's how it works. The foreigners are actually behind the Jewish ladies. Okay, So you have the guys who are cutting the, the, uh, the uh, harvest, cutting the wheat or whatever grain it is, and throwing the stalks behind them. The Jewish ladies are walking directly behind them and picking it up and collecting the grain. The foreigners are behind them. Whatever's left over is what they get. So the foreigners are back where the Moabite lady. So what Boaz says is, look, Jeff, I want you to do something. I don't want you to tell her what you're doing, but I want you to, everybody, all the workers, to find out where she is. And I want you to take out some of the stalks and throw it over right in front of her. It'll be, this is going to make a mess maybe. So, so where's Emma? Oh, look, right next to Emma. Throw the stuff right next to her. So she, she has no clue. I don't want you to embarrass her. I don't want her to feel like a charity case. I don't want everybody, oh, you're poor, you're a mobile. Here, have something. God bless you. Ooh, don't touch, don't touch. It, he doesn't want her to feel like she's getting charity. He wants to build her confidence that God is blessing her in my field. So not to embarrass her, don't rebuke her, just throw the stalks right in front of her that anybody could find that she can find because he wants to have her to feel self-worth and dignity. But she doesn't know, she's never been in Israel before. She has no clue what she's doing. That's the kind of man Boaz is. And you know what? That's what Jesus does for us. He throws the blessings right in front of us. And sometimes we think we're so smart, we're so shrewd, the business is going so good, I'm getting all these amazing things are happening to me. Why? Because I'm sharp. I'm a really good salesman. And actually, I think this. Jesus is like, hey, angels, throw some, throw some stalks right in front of Ed. So he, he feels like he's really doing something good. I want him to feel confident and blessed. That's what a shepherd does. I want to provide for people so that they understand God loves them. I'm making allowance for it. We're getting towards a close here. We'll break in just a minute. In verse 19 and 21, Ruth goes home to her lovely, godly mother-in-law. In verses 19 and 21. And she's carrying a bigger sack than Santa would have at the start of Christmas Eve. She is loaded with grain from that day. Verse 19 and 21. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, asked Ruth, asked her, where did you glean? Where did you work today? Where did you harvest today? What, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. As soon as Ruth walks in the door, Naomi, whoa! She's got the mother load of grain today. I mean, it is a, it is a honker bag. Do you have that word honker? It's a honker bag. 
and she knows Emma has no clue what she's doing. Somebody blessed you. That, that's what Naomi says. Nobody walks home with that kind of load today. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Who was it? Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her, her daughter-in-law. He, God, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi added, that man, Boaz, is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers, or kinsman redeemer, depending on your translation. That's another story for another day. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. A shepherd blesses to the finish. It wasn't just a one-day blessing. When, as a shepherd, we don't just have one time with somebody. I said hi to James. Hi, James. God bless you. You've already taken enough time. I'm important. Maybe you're important. We'll see. But as a pastor, I'm really busy. I'm a really, really, really busy man. Just ask me. A shepherd invests his time. I'm not here just that you get blessed one time. For the rest of the harvest time, you stay here. I'll protect you and I'll bless you. It's a, it's a commitment with people. A shepherd blesses to the finish. In John 13, 1, Jesus is about to wash his disciples' feet. He's about ready to go to the cross, and he wants to express to them, guys, you're always worried about who's the leader, who's the pastor, who's the best, who's the number one amongst you. Let me, let me, I just want to show you guys what it means to be a leader in my kingdom. And this is where he takes off the clothes, wraps a uh, towel around himself, and begins to wash the feet. At the very beginning of that verse, in chapter 13 of John, verse 1, in the NIV, it says this. It was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own, the disciples, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's the job, the blessing of a pastor is, I don't have one meeting with you. Make sure you're committed to the church, and then I never see you again. I'm with you to see you come to maturity, as Dan read in Ephesians earlier. My goal, our goal as pastors and shepherds is to see people mature, see people grown up so that they then do the same thing, that we're equipping people. It's not just that I'm the superstar in the room. The only superstar in the room is Jesus. He's the only rock star here. And Jesus said, I want to show you this is what it looks like to love people. You're going to wash people's feet, but I'm going to love you to the end. It's not one and done. Does that make sense? Let's pray and we'll take a short break. Jesus, I thank you for the amazing way that you love us. I thank you for the amazing way that you love me. Jesus, I pray that you would help me to catch your heart. I pray that you would help me to understand how to love people really, really well. How to see in them, how to make a way that they would feel safe, they would feel protected, that they would walk away with uh, grain sacks that are brimming because they're blessed when they're around me, that they would feel safe 
around me as a shepherd, as a pastor. Thank you for this amazing group of people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a work in us, that we could realign our understanding to see how you love people, and we could walk in your footsteps fully. Adjust my thinking, adjust my understanding, adjust my activities, Lord, that I look just like you. Bless us and help us the rest of the day and this weekend. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name, amen. Thank you so much for your attentiveness. And I don't know, um, I know a few people in the room, but obviously I don't know most of you, and I don't know um, your role in the church. I don't know your role in life. I don't know your influence of people, whether you're a small group leader. Um, we call them small groups, home groups, cell groups. Life groups, we call them life groups too. Um, whether you're a life group leader, whether you just care for people, whether you used to be a pastor, uh, want to be a pastor, you just care for people, uh, whether you uh, work with the children, with the youth, with the worship team, there's so many different spheres uh, where you are actually caring for people. Um, just you may you know, work with the men, the women. So I have, I have a lot of material here that I could hand out on communication, um, if you're working, how many people work with couples? Any, any people here work with couples? One, two, three, four, five, six, okay. I have um, some material that is fantastic for working with couples. Um, my wife has some books that she recommends for couples and uh, for married women, um, not for unmarried women, but for married women. Um, so I just have, I have some uh, sheets here. I don't know if, if uh, we run out of them, if you have an administrator, maybe make some, some copies. But after that first session, I just have a question. Do you have any questions? Is there anything about pastoring God's people, um, about how to do, how do you get started, how do you know your influence, how do you know your gifting? Is someone supposed to recognize you? Are there any questions from that first session that are on your mind? I'd love to ask somebody a question about pastoring God's people. Any of them? Wow. Yes, ma'am. Um, okay, that's a great question. Okay, Rand, can you write that? How do you know? I'm going to have Dan answer that in just a second. How do you know if you are a pastor? Pastor, pasta. Did you have a question? Yes. It, it, it's not a fully formed question. It's really just your thoughts on how to be fully accepted and fully welcoming, but also holding to convictions and standards that um, 
Okay, excellent, excellent. That's a, that it does, I need to remember that. Um, can, did you get that, Randy? It's a brilliant, brilliant question. And I think it's, it, honestly, it's the heart of reaching people. So we'll come back to that in just a second. Anyone else have any other questions? Yes, sir. Okay, excellent, excellent. You got that, sweet pie? Great thing. What's your name, sir? Phil. Phil, I'm Tom. Nice to meet you. Great question. Yes, sir. Excellent question. Um, I struggled with that for years as a, um, before I was a pastor and after I was officially recognized as a pastor. Um, struggled with that for years. Fantastic question. Um, got that one, sweetheart? Awesome. I may even have my wife talk about that one. Yes, sir. Okay, excellent question. Priorities of a work of a pastor. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And if you've already asked one, but you have a follow-up to it or a different one, you can ask that one also. It's, the limit isn't just one. Unless it's a really bad question, then <laughs> no. Other questions? Mm, yes, sir. Without, without looking down on them. <laughs> you don't have my gifting, but we'll, we'll find a place for someone else, yes. Someone like you. <laughs> Absolutely, okay. Do you have that one down, sweetheart? Nigel, any questions? Enter my world. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. Because people do have perceptions of what you should and shouldn't be. Yeah, and that's always the pain is the expectations. Very, very painful. Andy, any questions? Just in receive mode, good, good. <laughs> Thinking about the next song, and that's okay, God bless yeah, That's good. It's all beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I can put a tune to that. Tony? Yeah, you, you mentioned it um, earlier about how when people met Jesus, it was like the best day of their lives. Yes. That Jesus could bring us hope. And so 
unless you're a Pharisee. Yes. Excellent, excellent, excellent question. Fabulous. Dan, got an answer for all these? Sure. <laughs> Any other ones? And we may, yes, Carl. Yes, beautiful, excellent. Um, I'll just answer that. Firstly, whatever you say is right, and you just say that to her. <laughs> it's really pretty simple. After 36 years of marriage, my wife is correct. And what you say is probably what we should do. Um, it will go well with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, life is really basic, you know, I just... Not as complicated as I thought it was when I was younger. When are you coming up to me? I, I guess soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't want to answer any of those, so I'm just going to move on. No. <laughs> well, that's really good. Really appreciate that. That's. <laughs> it's. Uh, it's. <laughs> That's a good thing. Okay, sweetheart, can you you want to step up here with me, and we'll just um, answer or attempt to answer some of those. And I may have Dan and Fee answer some of those too. It'd be a good thing. Can I? I'd like to answer the one. I think you said it. Um, just about how do you how do you pastor when you're having an off day? And I would I kind of wanted to add an off season. You know, we went through a time in Chicago that was it was just really a terrible time. Um, we had some people try to attack our family. We had some people try to attack us. Uh, there were things going on in the church, and it just it it was terrible. <laughs> That's the only way to say it. I mean, I cried all the time. Um, it caused us to get on our knees to find out what the next chapter of our life was, and uh, it ended up us moving down from Chicago to St. Louis. It's about five and a half hours south, way hotter than Chicago. And um, so we moved down there, and Tom uh, got on, he, we were helping a friend start up a new church, and so he was pastoring, but we were still in so much pain. You know, and so it's really hard to give life when you're barely able to feed yourself. You know, and that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be able to feed ourselves. And what we found is we were so hurt, and even though we forgave the people for what they did, um, and I think all none of them asked for forgiveness. I think that was difficult as well. But we forgave the people. But yet there had been some, some darts that had gone in, you know, to your chest and into your heart and lies that maybe you begin to believe. And it was just truly, it came down to just a daily, it's like getting back to what you know. It's like what I know is God is good. I will read his word and I will pray. And that's all I can do. And over time, um, 
our feelings began to heal and we felt our minds began to heal and we also learned something really wonderful and I don't remember how we somebody told us probably Dan probably Dan yeah to bless those people to verbally bless those people that hurt us and so whenever you know how it is you get hurt you see the person or something reminds you of them or their thought their name comes to mind immediately it's that it's almost like a limp and it's like oh thought thought that was healed and you're limping again so every time that thought came to mind we blessed those people lord i bless their marriage I bless their children. I bless their finances and their work. And it really helped us keep our heart right. We may not have been giving out a lot of fresh water, but we might have had, we might have been offer, able to offer a cup. Um, what I, I would absolutely agree with what Randy said. We find is um, Jesus regularly went away to a solitary place mm-hmm. to pray. And thinking of the time where Jesus was at the well, and the disciples left, he sent them all to McDonald's, and he was at the well, and, and it says he was tired. And uh, to me, I find it so encouraging to see even that the Prince of Peace, uh, at times on the inside, I won't say he was dry, but it's just he is out of energy. He's out of gas, out of petrol, if you will. And he had to pull aside to his father. But even, even in those places, when it says he was at the well with a woman, he was tired, you pull on a reserve, you pull on a, a well on the inside. When you don't think anything is there, there is something there. And that's that gold, that's that deposit. And you pull on Holy Spirit in that moment is, Lord, I have nothing to give this person, and yet, Lord, I do. And that's when, um, in my weakness, I'm strong. And so uh, what I found um, in pastoring, uh, many times there's so many pastors that we've come across, they actually need to take a sabbatical. They are, they're just to recognize I'm in a bad place. I'm not in a healthy place. And literally it's to go to someone and say, you know what, I am not functional right now. Um, I am, and is it, is it a season? Is it an occurrence? Is there something wrong in my life? And that's a whole other thing we could talk about is the ability to have accountability, people speaking into your life, uh, people that you actually listen to. Um, but I have found with loving people, it's almost like, um, and if you, if you don't have children, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but it, it's for my kids, uh, or, or you know, if, if you're married, I can't just have off days and yell at my wife, and that's okay. Well, I'm just having an off day, so you're gonna get the kick. It's not okay. In that reservoir of Jesus that is on the inside of all of us, it's to pull that up and stay connected continually even when I'm struggling, you know, people go through depression, a loss of a loved one, um, loss of a job, and it, it's so difficult, and pastors are not immune from any of that. And at times, um, they can act, take on other people's offenses and take on other people's pains. And to me, the key in, in pastoring God's people is you must stay connected to the Father. You must stay connected to Holy Spirit. And so that's as a pastor, you pull away and you're praying in tongues and you're saying what the Bible says about you and you draw life from him. You cannot just, and I know so many pastors, they stop reading the Bible. You know, they, they haven't, they, they prepare, the only time they actually get in the Bible is when they're preparing sermons. And you wonder why they meet so many cranky, 
tired, frustrated pastors, they stopped walking with Jesus. And so as to recognize, is it because I've walked away or I'm actually, even as a pastor, I'm really bruised. I am damaged on the inside right now and I need someone to strengthen me. I need someone to support me. Do, and so that's what I would say. One of the things, Tony, is do I have a safe place? Are there people that I can go and talk to? Do people actually know what's happening in my life? My, my wife and I have a, um, an agreement for me that if I'm not responding to her appropriately, if I'm not listening to her, if she knows I'm out of sorts and I've been out of sorts, uh, I, I've told her, please call these two, three guys at any point when I'm no longer responsive. You don't have to ask my permission. You don't have to tell me you're going to do it. Call them and have them come speak to me and challenge where I'm at. So that there's a, it's like a fail-safe in our life. And to me, that's true brothering, true sistering. I don't know if that's a good word, but um, is having accountability in my life where if she can recognize what's going on. And the beautiful thing, when we were in Chicago and it was it was just a horrific situation we went through. I think Dan called it the perfect storm. It was three different events, uh, traumatized, kind of cha life-changing events, all happened in one weekend within 48 hours that just devastated our life. One involved our, our daughter, a friend of ours had an, uh, took advantage of our daughter, a man in the church about our age, horrific. Um, a lady made a bunch of accusations. Uh, against us and against me personally. They were ugly and later admitted they were lies and she just made up the lies out of spite. And you're like, why, what's going, it was just the devil attacking. Um, but the, the result was I was in a less than pleasant place for about three or four years of my life. It just kind of felt like my world was falling apart. People that I trusted that had brought, we'd brought close, um, two of our best friends were involved in it. You see, it's just horrific what happens to people. How can you keep giving out sweet water? And to me, is the only way is to stay connected to Holy Spirit. That is the only way. And to have brothers and sisters who will stand with you and support you. And so, to me, it's um, do I have a relationship before the damage happens? Do I have a relationship with people when I'm in a good, healthy place? I, I don't want to go and try and find friends when I need a friend. Does that make sense? And so many people, and I'll say this, I find that men are much more common with this. They have no friends. There's no one who knows what's happening on the inside. And when you're in danger, it's not the time to go make a friend. The time, it's too late, if it will. You can have, you can go to a counselor, but I want to go to a brother that knows me, understands me, has stood with me for years, and there's a, there's a track record of time. And so that's what I'd ask you as a shepherd, who are you accountable to? Who knows you? Who knows my weaknesses? Who knows my strengths? Who knows my, my failing tendencies? Is there anybody who knows those secret things that are in my life? They're not secret to him because I've made myself vulnerable to him. Does that make sense? It's so important that there's a vulnerability. And so if, if, you're, a, if you're a gentleman here and you don't have any friends, I want to challenge you. Why? Why? It shouldn't be that way. Jesus hasn't wired us to be that way. There are no isolated, especially as a pastor. A pastor, people, and then we'll come back to answer your question on that one. 
Um, a pastor is open. A pastor is vulnerable. A pastor comes alongside other people. Who knows what makes me tick and ticks me off? It's just a little phrase that I who So I have people in my life who I'm accountable to. Probably a year and a half ago, I went to, maybe two, a year and a half, 18 to 24 months ago, I went to Dan in his, in his house in Chicago, in his backyard, and I said, okay, what do you see about me in my life that's not lovely? Period. And, you know, the bad thing is I expected him to go, oh, man. Hmm. Instantly, he came out with an answer. I was like, take a moment. <laughs> Golly. I mean, I, I hadn't even put a, a, a full stop on the sentence, and he's out with the answer. I'm like, ow. Stop it. <laughs> You should pause, really. <laughs> but I said, what do, you, what do you see in my life that's not lovely? Where, where am I lacking? And instantly he said, confidence. Confidence. He says, Tommy, you don't believe in yourself. You need this to step into who you are as a man of God. And I'm 55 years old at the time. 56 maybe-ish. Still struggling with things on the inside, but it's, it's a thing in my life that I've dealt with my whole life just struggling to believe that I am who God says I am and to move into that and not be adrift with insecurities that have wanted to pull me back my whole life. Believe and be confident in who God says I am. But my friend will tell me the truth. Do you have a friend who will tell you the truth and hold you accountable? And so I don't wait for my friends to come to me. I go to my friends and say, please speak into my life. I have no right to speak into anyone else's life if I don't have people speaking into mine. That's a shepherd. I have flaws just like everyone else. I need to deal with my stuff. And maybe we'll get to that in just a second. Does that make sense? It's so important. Anything on that, sweet Yeah, time? well, just uh, with your question about how do you know that you're pastor, at least our experience was we were already doing that well before it was ever we were ever labeled or got any kind of a title. Um, we were part of a big church in our early married years, and we just had a lot of close friendships. And we tried to base, well, our friendships were based on encouraging one another in the Lord. And Tom would try to, uh, whenever there was a serving opportunity, he would do that. We went then out to San Diego to be part of a it's church a really plant. Yeah, that, that was great. Place. Go to San Diego, California. Yeah. It's a good place. And we just, it was on our hearts just to serve. Whatever we, whatever was there to do, we'll do it. It was, it was fine. You know, whenever do you, when do you get an opportunity to go to San Diego? You know, and we wanted to make the most of it. And so it was, we already felt like we had good relationships and, and then more were added. And then as just as you serve, you just sort of see, I think I really like this. I like having an impact in people's lives. I like talking about the Lord. It's my favorite thing to talk about. I like um, being a friend. I like serving. And so it just, it wasn't like somebody just came and said, you are a pastor, which maybe that happens. You get a prophetic word or something like that. But at least for us, it was just a, a continuation of growth in something that we were already doing long before we were ever um, yeah, recognized or called to lead a church. 
you know so it's finding out how you're wired what really flips your switch in the kingdom and and how you love to serve and it shows you know i think what you're supposed to do in the body it's how you fit because he wired you that way so let's how great it would be if we all did stuff that really made us happy you know if we had jobs that really made us happy and didn't just earn a living i mean that's a new uh, that's wonderful people can do that um something else too uh who asked about what's he doing nothing standing here watching me i can talk (laughs) um the question about Boaz showing unconditional acceptance and how do we accept yet hold to our conviction. I heard an incredible message in Chicago about acceptance before change. ABC, I don't know, did you ever share that here? Did you share that here? That has stuck, I mean, people are still talking about that. We brought a group of people up to Chicago one weekend just to meet everybody up there and uh, people are still talking about that message so we accept people no matter where they are you know we love them and we accept them and I want you to share the story about Paul and Kathy there was a a wonderful couple yeah there was a wonderful yeah there was yeah there was a wonderful couple who were new to the church and this was in Letchworth and they were um, they were very active she was leading worship and uh, I think they were doing stuff with the kids but they were living together. They were not married. So, so we had, we were in St. Louis. We we're moving to England to pastor church. It was Easter Sunday. I was, uh, I was potentially going to be the new pastor. It's 1994. Preach a message on Easter Sunday, and this woman came forward and got saved. Beautiful young lady. And it's okay that we share the story. Just yeah, so yeah, know. they're okay with it. They're up, it's all good now. Yeah. So this beautiful young lady, she's about 30, came forward, tears, I mean, mascara, snot, it was, it, that's when you know it's really, it's real. So she comes forward, gets saved, three or four other people get saved, and there's a guy standing behind her, nice looking guy, kind of look like Elvis, and you know, he's beaming, a nice guy. And so afterwards, everybody's so excited because this woman got saved. Kathy got saved. It's amazing. They've been in the church for six months. They're not Christians. They're living together. So this woman, I think she was part of the worship team. The guy was serving in the sound booth. And they're, and so half, it's a really small church. It's like 35 people. I mean, it's, it was a small church. And so it's like, you know, anybody, you know, we'll bring in, you know, bring in, all of them, even, you know, just even the, let the Americans come in. And so now there's a problem, and we weren't going to be moving to England for another four months, and the, the leader came, very wonderful man, very much like you, Nigel, love this guy, and he said, we have a problem. And I'm like, oh, what's the problem? He said, Kathy got saved. I said, no, that's not a problem. That's a good thing. He said, no, 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 no. She's on the worship team. I mean, she's on the worship team, and she wasn't saved, and she's doing this, and she's doing that. And he's like, oh. And I said, so what's the problem? And he says, well, what do we do? I mean, they're living together. And, I, and so I talked with them, and then all the leaders got involved, and probably half the leaders think one thing, half the leaders think the other thing. And so you don't judge me. Okay, are we all agreed? Don't judge Tom. Don't judge Tom. It's okay. So I said, how about if we do this? 
how about if we just love them for a few weeks and let the Holy Spirit convict them? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. It's okay. I'm sure Peter Reynolds would have said the same. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. So I got a phone call two months in, and you know we're still two months away from moving to this wonderful city, and they're still living together, and they're still living together, and they're still living together. I said, all right, I'll be there in two months. Are you... Are you, everybody's spending time with them. Just encourage them, bless them, yes. But somebody, somebody needs to address them. Somebody needs to address their sin. And I said, it's okay. I said, it's okay. Jesus loves them. If they're born again, it's going to be okay. So we went there, arrived, and I started meeting with them immediately as a couple. And I, and I talked to the leaders. I said, do this just, I said, Nigel, just trust me. Just trust me on this one. I feel really good about this one. Pick, you can throw the stones in a few weeks, but at this point, just trust me. And I met with this couple for seven weeks, and we just talked about the Bible. And I never once addressed their living together. and never came out of my mouth. I never moved towards marriage. I never talked about, you know, all the sin going on. And after about, after about four weeks, they came to me, and, and, and we're, just, we're just going through um, basic discipleship stuff. And they said, Tom... I just want you to know uh, we're actually in separate bedrooms now. And I said, oh, good, okay. But you know, tell me about your job. And we started talking about his job. After six or seven weeks, he came to me, and they came to me and said, um, we really feel like, what, if, I, we don't think it's right to live together. Um, could you help us how we're supposed to do this? Because we're living in the same flat, and we're really convicted, and we haven't had sex in weeks since we got saved. We, you know, we're not even sleeping in the same bedroom, but we just don't want it to be awkward for anybody else. We, do, you, do, you, do you think it would be okay if we got married? Because, and they've been living together for 13 years. And, and, I, and I said, yeah, we, you want to talk about that? And they said, yeah, we'd like to talk about marriage. So okay, we can talk about marriage. And I said, to me, so to me, it was, and again, it was a really unique situation. Can I just say that? Re and here's one of the things about pastoring. Don't apply the same grid to every single situation. The Holy Spirit will speak to you to tell you just what to do in just this situation. The Bible has parameters. The Bible has right, rights and wrongs. The Bible is clear as a bell on most issues in life. Okay? But Holy Spirit, what do you want to do with these people in this instance? And I find... That's what Jesus did. Because you know what? Jesus should have picked up a rock and stoned a woman who was caught in adultery. It's clear as a bell. Stone her. What, what I find interesting, too, is, like, so let's skip forward a few years. I find many times his approach is different than my approach. I find it really, really hard not to go and tell that person, you know what you're doing is wrong. You know, the Bible says this. And so somebody asked a question about how do we support one another. And we talk about these things all the time because many, many times I find I'm the one who can be a little bit, I, I'm a rule follower. I like to tell the truth. If I play a game with you, please don't cheat. Don't cheat. I think that, I think, you know, people who cheat might go to hell. <laughs> you know, we... We don't cheat. We, well, when you play cards, you hold them close. You don't show your hand. Anyway, so I find our perceptions on when we, when we encounter situations, he is so good for me 
because it's like the fresh air of the Holy Spirit. And he helps me to see I can't just always go by the letter of the law, that I need to go by the Spirit, you know, the Spirit of the law and God's Holy Spirit to help change me. And so thankfully, I think our gifts, kind of moving into this other question, our gifts are very similar um, so it's easy to support one another, but I find um, many times in situations I need to remain silent and and support his direction and his leading. I and I do feel, <laughs> I do feel, you that know. That was Jesus right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I know that about myself. You know, you get to a certain age, you know you have certain tendencies, you know that if some people say, some people, it might be a situation or a word or something, you just have a tendency to, to maybe react in a certain way. And I recognize I have those tendencies. I'm trying to overcome them. And I'm trying to listen and to change. And so he helps me with that. We talk about things over and over and over. And he helps me to see, because I do, I would like to go in and tell people where they're wrong yeah and and I recognize that about my personality um, one of the things in in coming back to you Josh um, an acceptance I found probably the most powerful um, tool in loving people is listening to people number one tool in pastoring 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 how do you do this thing listen to people and the story with Boaz and Ruth he got her story before he went after her he got her story before he tried to adjust correct what is this person's story and I find so often Christians are accused of being so judgmental I don't care what it is I just, uh, and I, the, the can you imagine if you look back on your life how patient Jesus has been with you with all your issues, the same thing that you've asked Jesus for forgiveness for 30,000 times, and you know what he says? I forgive you. Clean, white as snow. He's patient, but he listens, listens, listens. And I would say also, part of that listening is, um, and two other things, is get literally get their story. Pull out of them. Why are they wired this way? How are they... How do they come to this conclusion? If they're living in an alternative lifestyle, they believe drugs are okay, or they believe this is okay, and all that. Actually listen to them. What is their worldview? How did they arrive at this opinion? And, and I find one of the uh, keys also, which is, I may talk about in a few minutes, is in pastoring is the ability to ask questions. Jesus, if you look through the New Testament so many times, Jesus didn't come riding in on a horse with a whip and clean house with everybody. He, people would try and trap him. People would just address him. And how many times did Jesus ask questions? He didn't just answer everything. Question, question. It pulls the well out of people. There's a scripture. Daniel knows a scripture. Um, he who is wise. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, he who wins souls is wise. And it's in order to... Um, in order to pull them out, I need to get close to them. I need to learn how to draw out people. from. And many times, all they want to know is, are you going to judge me or are you going to listen to me? Are you going to accept me? And the only way you can pastor people is time. 
You know, have you ever met with somebody and you're talking to Josh and it's like, yeah, hmm, yeah, 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 ah, yeah. I said, Where, where's Jeff? Where's Jeff? There he oh, I'm sorry, Josh. What were you saying? They're always looking past you, reading the room, seeing. I'm like, dude, let's just break because clearly you have no interest in me. And when you're looking at Jesus, he's got you eye to eye, focused. Have you ever prayed when Jesus was distracted? You ever gone on a long walk and Jesus said, I'm really busy right now? What was that? I'm sorry, who, who are you? Ed, that's right, Ed, you're Ed. I'm sorry, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention. What did you say for the last 10 minutes? I'm kind of worried about this China thing over here. So, you know, what about your job? Jesus has got eye contact all the time. Have I actually got listening skills? And here's just a thought. I'm just going to say this. No hands raised, okay? No hands raised. Nobody raise a hand. How many people in this room you think you're actually a really good listener? How many people think you're a really good listener? I don't know how many people are in the room. Let's say 48. There's probably eight in this room good listeners. But every single person in this room thinks you're a good listener. <laughs> what? what time's lunch? Are we eating in here today? Because I'm kind of hungry. Now we got the McDonald's, we got the fish fry. <laughs> I found in life very, very few people, because you see it in marriage counseling all the time when you're meeting with people, very few people are actually attentive, skilled listeners. This is what happens with most people. They're a million miles away. They're in Tahiti. They're in Bora Bora. They're planning that, you know, the new conservatory on their house. They're like, huh, 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 I'm sorry. Or I'm talking, and she's already answering my question. She hasn't, she checked out three minutes ago. She's already articulating an answer in her own mind of what I just said, or arguing with me, or disagreeing with me in her mind. I mean, not you. Your husband would do that. Not you. <laughs> very, very few people are actually skilled listeners. And I find it one of the most difficult challenges in my life to cause me to grow, to focus, what is this man saying? And not just the words that he's saying, what is he trying to communicate behind it? So many times in pastoring people, I get so caught up on his words, his actual words, and I completely miss the intent of his heart. That is a skilled listener. I'm not worried about the words you said because I've caught your heart. I understand, and if I don't understand, I'll ask a question, and I'll come in this way, and I'll come in this way, and so I can catch what's really happening. If you want to pastor people, shepherd people, love people, learn how to ask questions to get to their heart. It is so important. So, and to me, that's, that's one, probably the biggest thing about acceptance is to actually listen and not judge. Acceptance before change, A, B, C. Accept them before I expect them to change. And if they feel my love, and again, it's, it's one of the, the old sayings, I'll try and get it right. People don't know how much, they don't care how much you know, they wanna know how much you care. Does that make sense? They don't care how much you know, do you care? And if you care, then I'll give you time. Pastoring is so simple. But it's so, it can be so painstaking because it takes time to listen to people's story and catch their heart. Then they'll trust you with their treasure, which is their heart.
But if I don't think you care, I just what do you honestly, ma'am? What do you want to hear? Then I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear because I can tell you don't care about me. So I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear and walk away. If somebody's laser locked on me, I'll open up. How Give do you me. love unconditionally and still have boundaries? No, no, I don't want to answer that. Uh, how do you love unconditionally and still have boundaries? I think that was your question back there, sir. Um, <clears throat> I think it's so important. We just read a book, uh, several books recently by a guy named Danny Silk, S-I-L-K, Bethel. I'm sure you, most of you are familiar with them. Uh, probably the best and most skilled and most succinctly said in some of his um, pastoral books, whether it's uh, um, Loving on Purpose, uh, Culture of Honor, it's just... Keep your love on. Just actually, probably those two books, Culture of Honor and Keep Your Love On, are the two best books I've found personally on pastoring. It doesn't speak specifically, but it's just interpersonal relationships. And I found having healthy boundaries so necessary in life. Otherwise, you're going to get steamrolled, run over. Um, what I ask people to do is to consider potentially the right priorities of their life. Because if I, if I can establish priorities, I probably can also establish boundaries. <clears throat> and I tell folks who are past, like a Jonathan Horsfall, who's in uh, Morris, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. We have the pleasure and privilege of meeting with them fairly regularly. And this is one of the things I talked with Jonathan and Ruth, because they are you know, pastoring a church, and because they're in America, they, don't, they can't work outside employment. And I told, uh, spoke to Jonathan in meeting with him, God is first above anybody else. Your spouse is second before anybody else. When your children come along, your children are first before anybody else. So it's God, your spouse if you're married, and children if you have them. <clears throat> anybody that comes before them, this is a unhealthy priority in your life and out of whack. Sister Susie, as lovely as she is, does not come before my spouse's needs. She's not more priority to me. She's not more important to me than my children. So you have Jesus, you have your spouse if you have a spouse, you have your children if you have um, children, then your work, and after that, church, and your relationships in church. Now, that's not if you are in a, you know, like Dan and Fee, they're in, in that type of a job, or, or Randy and I, you know, the work is, you know, it's all kind of mixed in there together. But it's to understand, I have so many friends of mine over the years, um, and maybe you're the same, unfortunately, Christians' marriages who ended in divorce. It's horrific, it's an epidemic, it's a blight on the church, it's wrong, and I find so many times it's, their priorities in life are completely out of whack, and they, they are giving time to things that are, you know, it, it's, it's women who are literally hiding behind their children, and when the children move out at 20, 22, 25 years old, they wake up next to a husband they don't even know anymore because they live through their children. So many times in, in our life, so many um, men end up divorced because they've lived their whole life, their job was their priority, way above their spouse, more important than their spouse, and the wife knew it. <clears throat> the kids move out, job doesn't go well, and they're waking up to a woman they don't even know because now their business imploded, business has gone crazy, they're more attracted to the secretary. The work is way down the priority list. Kids are beneath the spouse. It all falls under Jesus, 
marriage if you're married, kids if you have those, then work, then your church work. And so things, to me, healthy boundaries will stem from right priorities. And for me, um, with, Don, Dean, do you want to talk about healthy boundaries with people? Do you have any thoughts on that? Okay. I would really like to get your, your insights on this. Um, <clears throat> this is one of the things, again, this is something I told Jonathan. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Jonathan, and you'll appreciate this. If you, how many people here know Jonathan, first of all? Great, that's wonderful. We love Jonathan and Ruth. Their little girl, Evie, is beautiful, beautiful little girl. So I told Jonathan this early on. I said, Jonathan, I want to help you with something. I said, women are going to find you attractive. And clearly it has nothing to do with the way you look. <laughs> if I can say this, the anointing and gift of heaven makes you attractive to people. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. But look, the anointing the gift of God, whether you're a prophetic, whether you're apostolic, whether you're a teacher, preacher, pastor, whatever, the anointing of God makes you attractive to people. Uh, think of the story about uh, King David in 1 Samuel 16. It said he was ruddy and handsome as a youth. And uh, he went out and killed Goliath, I think that's chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. And there's a, a, a funny little passage in there. And King Saul, King Saul, if you know the story, uh, was a pretty insecure guy. And David killed Goliath. And the, the story goes, there was women were singing this story. Saul has killed his thousands. And that handsome little kid, David, has killed his tens of thousands. Now, if you're the king and insecure and you got some little hotshot kid, I don't like that. But the women were all attracted to David. He's young, he's virile. The Bible says he's handsome. Now you've got a giant killer, and the women are like, ooh, Swan, David, he's so cool. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we actually have some horrific stories that we won't go into because they're horrific stories. But I've seen so many people fall morally because they didn't understand these people, they're attracted to the gift of God inside of me. And I've got to keep healthy boundaries with people. And literally, there was a, there was a lady in Chicago. Um, and I would be talking with her, and it's, and it's just like a glaze would come over her eyes. And, it, you know, you, yeah, she was a single lady. I was, I was going to do it with Josh, but that's just going to be awkward. I'll do it with Randy. So I'm talking with this lady, and it's talking about, you know, well, you really need to read Luke 4. And it's like she was just like, like, hello, anybody home? And I just recognized danger, danger, danger. You're a fool if you don't recognize and look for danger, danger, danger. Inappropriate relationship. And it may be nothing on my part, but it's just you recognize somebody has interested in you. And the enemy knows exactly when you're feeling low about yourself, 
when there might be an issue at home, an unresolved issue with your spouse, or if you're encountering a challenging situation or you're going through just a, a, a rough time, maybe you're in school and you're, you know, you're under a lot of pressure, he knows all that. And that, that person can just be like a breath of fresh air, you know, and they know exactly what to say to you to get you to kind of think, huh. And then all of a sudden you're looking at them in a completely different way, and it's a trap. It's yeah. just a trap. Yep. And it's, um, I look at King David, I, I believe, I just, I just believe it, it's my own conjecture, Bible doesn't say it, just knowing how people are. I think David was used to the attention of women. He was used to women singing his praise. He was used to people, women finding him attractive. And in his middle 50s, theologians will tell you, he still had an issue with women. Had multiple wives, any woman he wanted, and yet, in his 50s, because he had an unresolved issue, an unresolved boundary in his life, looked over, when the kings should be out fighting the wars, he's looking over the edge and seeing a beautiful single, a married, very married woman named Bathsheba. And the country was torn apart, his family was torn apart. Why? Because there was an unhealthy thing inside of him that never got addressed. It was the anointing of God that made him attractive to so many women, and it's to understand, in your gift, it, it has, it's all, if I can put it like this, it's like you, if, depending on your gifting, I won't embarrass Dan, I won't embarrass Dan. Um, let's just say, oh, I'd really like to, but <laughs> please, go, go. It's a, it's a, if I can just put it like this, here's what the anointing is like, and I, I don't mean to trivialize the anointing, to make light of it in any way, but it's like a woman walking into a room with, with a beautiful cologne on, a beautiful fragrance. She walks into the room and it just kind of fills the room and everybody's like, oh, what's that smell? Well, it's Susan with Chanel number 94, whatever it is. And it's just, I think, and it just kind of, you just walk and it just leaves, an, the anointing leaves an aroma around you and it causes people to turn their head and notice people. Does that make sense? I, I can't, I don't know how to articulate it anyway, but as a pastor, as a pastoral person, whether you're a man or a woman, is to recognize I must keep healthy boundaries from the opposite sex. And I'm just gonna say this, if in your um, before life, if you had issues with same-sex attraction, the devil isn't stupid. He's not stupid. The anointing will continue to attract what it used to attract. Because it just, I, I can't explain it. Does that make sense? And we can ask other questions about it. Recognize safe boundaries. You don't, if you're a gentleman, you don't ever, ever, ever walk into a single lady or a, any, any woman's house by yourself. As a pastor, if you have an office or something like this, the door is always open. The secretary always knows where you're at. Your wife always knows where you're at. As a woman, you don't ever meet with men alone in a private place ever for any reason. I don't ever have, I don't ever give a woman a ride in my car, ever. Ever, 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 ever. I give the, uh, the devil no opportunity in my life. Healthy, wise boundaries. My wife can give her a ride. Does that make sense? Any questions off of that? Dan, you have anything to say on healthy boundaries? Anything? Can you, who asked that, that question? Did it get did it get answered? Yeah, I mean, the, what I was thinking more about was my own 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can, so can you can you can you unpack it, Dave, a little bit more about time? With people to do with pastoral issues. Yeah. Excellent. Dave, because I know you are, I was thinking that's probably where you're going. And I, but I wanted Tom Randy to go because there's always gold nuggets when you go off the side roads and just, and it was just fantastic. I was enjoying it. But I would just say this. Here's a couple of statements. I really want to give as much time to Tom and Randy because you hear from me a lot. But um, don't work harder on people's issues more than they're willing to. In, uh, in the Gospels, there's... Yeah, don't work harder on people's issues more than they're willing to. Yeah, and here's a little key. Um, and this is probably, you know, if in the culture class, uh, the C for culture is choice. And I, I kind of go back to choice so often because God as a father always gives with it, with the choice. So it, with the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, he told them not to eat from it, but then he gave them the power to disobey. Today I bring heaven and earth as witnesses. Choose, choose. Everyone say choose. Choose life or choose death. God always gives choice. With the, with the rich young ruler, watch this, and I think this will, this will hone in on your question, Dave. With the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good master, I've done all of these things. What do I need to do to be saved? And there's a little line. I just love this. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he went away disappointed because he had much wealth. So Jesus gave him instruction with a choice. He decided not to obey Jesus and went away disappointed, but Jesus still loved him. And I think one of the things, healthy boundaries of pastoring people, is to give them something to do. And then see if they want to do it. And if they don't do it, you love them just the same. But Jesus didn't negotiate with the rich young ruler. Whoa, 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 hang on. Hey, bud, come back here. All right, what, 50%? <laughs> there was no negotiation. He said he looked at his heart, and the issue wasn't the money. It just happened to be his issue. But he looked at his heart, and he, Jesus saw that the issue was the love of money. And he said, so, so he said, this is what you want to do. I'm answering your question, sir. You ask, what can I do to follow me? I'm telling him, go and give, it, give everything you have and give it to the poor. And he went away disappointed. So I think choice is... Giving people, giving, if God gives us the prerogative to choose, then so must we. And a good shepherd will love somebody even if they don't do what we've suggested or what we asked us to do. And Jesus modeled that. Does that make sense? But giving people something to do. So otherwise, you're working harder on their problem than they're willing to. Because every, oh, they're always coming back to see you, but they never did the last thing. <laughs> that you suggested that they do. And so suddenly you feel like you're getting worn out and you feel like this person is always coming to me with the same issue. But reality is, is hey, I just I simply ask you to do this. Sometimes I'll ask people just to do simple things just to see how responsive they are. Here's another great scripture that I'm going to hand about to Tom. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2, 2, 2. Really easy to remember. And this is Paul writing from prison. It's one of his last, that is the last letter that he wrote. And he says, Timothy, my son, 
listen carefully to me. And then he says, the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses in trust, watch this, in trust to faithful, another translation says reliable people who will have the ability to teach others also. And so he's saying, Timothy, what I've taught you in trust to faithful people. And so are they full of faith? Are they faithful with little? Are they faithful with the things, simple things that you ask them to do? And I'm not talking about controlling things, like go and clean my car. <laughs> I'm talking about character stuff. Hey, you need, to, you need to stop doing that. Can you see that's wrong? But if they're coming back week after week, month after month with the same issue, after a while you'll start working on their problems more than, than they're willing to. Make sense? Boundaries, I think. Setting, setting people, giving things people to do and setting choice um, and, and but giving them choice and loving them even when they don't make the choices that you think they should or you'd like them to, um, I think we're modeling what Jesus is like. We take a short break, about 10, 15 minutes, and we'll come back and we'll finish up. want to touch on a couple of things and then answer maybe a couple more questions. Um, so appreciate your attentiveness and and again still if there's a question you're like oh that spawned a question please raise your hand uh, you're not interrupting uh, we appreciate it. Just on, on the, the people that Daniel just addressed those people and I actually had it on my my notes I have uh, don't work harder on them than they are on themselves. And I was the master at that. Um, I, uh, I have too many stories. I, now I give people assignments when I meet with them. Have them read this chapter. Have them read this section. Write out uh, this, you know, five things, what you're going to do in this situation. And if they, if they're two different times they haven't actually done what I've asked them to do, then I put it back on them. And I say, clearly you're too busy, sir. What's your name? Liam, I'm Tom. Liam, clearly you're more interested in eating biscuits than, than doing the assignment. Now, now see, where's mine is all I want to know. So if Liam hasn't, if he hasn't done his assignments, if I, you know, I, and I'm just, I'm nervous that he's just kind of taking advantage, just wanting time, but he doesn't actually want to change. A brilliant way of discipling people is to give them assignments, give them uh, a project to do out of the word, whether it's pray. And what I'll do is just, just make a, a log each day of where you've been reading the Bible and what did God say to you. I read Proverbs 19. It's the 19th of the day. Just each day, write down what God said to you out of Proverbs 19. On the 20th, write down what God spoke to you out of Proverbs 20. And if they don't do it after two times, I say, you know, clearly you're really busy. I want you to do the assignments. And before we meet again, don't call me. Do the assignments before we meet again. And then, you know, God's going to speak to you, but I ask them. I put it back on them. If you're too busy, it's okay. I love you. I accept you. But, and I, I have a, a phrase that I'm not going to use. It's, because um, <laughs> it just sounds bad. It just sounds bad. Okay, in the universe, there's these things. that They, they call them black holes. And they're like, you know, the, they just suck the life out of constellations and all energy. Go, have you ever heard of those things in the universe that are called black holes? 
You know, and I find some people are like that. They will suck the life out of you, and they have no intention of changing, no intention of doing anything, but they do want to take all your time. And so what I'd rather do is to recognize that in people, they don't want to change. All they want is attention, and that's okay. And so with those people, when I get to that point, I say, you know what, instead of dealing with this person who just wants to suck me dry and give no intention, I'd rather spend time with Liam and invest my time in somebody who's hungry, who's actually doing something, and maybe, maybe he just needs it. So what I will do with those people is, I'll ask them, would you please go see a professional counselor? This sounds really bad. But if they're willing to pay $100 for a counselor, all of a sudden they're gonna get serious about actually changing if it costs them money. Does that make sense? And of course, if they have lots of money, it's no big deal. But it's, it's a simple way of helping people be as interested in changing as I'm interested in them changing. And it's to love people and help them. Yes, sir. Oh, I don't want to sort of Oh, no, no, please. Yes. Great question. And it's so important. Again, it's healthy boundaries and it's setting boundaries because literally people, especially if you're, you know, just say, we'll take Dan and Fee. Um, We pay you to answer your phone. We pay you to meet with me. I'm paying you good money. You know, you're my pastor. I need you right now and I don't care what you're doing. Um, And that's an unhealthy boundary and an unhealthy expectation, which was part of another question that we may get to. Um, when, I f- when we first got into working for the church as opposed to employment outside, um, I was horrible at days off. I just didn't do it. And I, I'm by nature kind of a workaholic. I can work 70, 80 hours a week in what I love, and I just thrive on it. But other things, if I'm thriving on that, are not going to thrive. And so what I had to develop is, and I'll just be real honest, this is what we did. I would set a day that I was thinking, uh, I found Monday was a horrible day because Sunday was so, I saw so many people, so I ended up taking like Fridays off, and I was ruthless. I turned my phone off, you know, at the back of the day it was, you know, the phone was like, you know, two feet long. Um, Set that, you know, park that thing in the garage and not go near it. Um, mm, I'm not gonna go there. There was no texting, texting wasn't an issue. But I literally, I would have people stop by my house because because my wife and I are extremely relational. And uh, I, I'm not, I, I despise what I would call professional pastors. I loathe it, I, don't, I just don't see it. I, we are very relational, and the people in our church typically are our friends. We, we're, we are friendly with people. But I, we had a gentleman named Rich came to our house. It was on a Friday night, knocked on the door. He was going through some marriage issues. And he said, hey, I'm here, brother. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm busy. He said, oh, is it, you know, he's looking, you know, he's trying to walk into my house. You know, oh, is somebody here? And I said, no, no one's here. And he said, oh, well, good. So he's just walking in, you know, he's a single brother. And, and um, I said, Rich, stop. He said, well, you're not busy. I want to come in. I'm like, no, I'm with my wife. And he went, oh, well, I can still come in, can't I? I'm like, no. I really like her a lot more than you, Rich. I didn't say that. I did not say that specifically like that. 
And so this is what I would do with my schedule. We would plan it out three months in advance. Tuesday, Thursday, nights, no phone calls, no appointments, nobody, just me and her. The following, so it's two nights a week. The following week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at home, no appointments, no phone calls, just me and her. I'm pastor of the church. Now, if somebody's bleeding and dying, we'll overlook that. But if it's just Ed, who wants to tell me about his dog is barking and he can't sleep at night, well, now I can't sleep at night, Ed. I don't want to hear about your dog. Your dog can wait till tomorrow. My priority in healthy boundaries is this woman and my children. And so I set a ruthless time schedule that if somebody is in the hospital, great. The adjustment, the schedule gets adjusted. But most of the time, Friday was my day off, and I would set a minimum of two nights a week with my beautiful wife, and the following week, three nights with her, because if this isn't right, I have nothing to export to anybody. I have nothing to say to anybody if this isn't right. So my priority is her and my children over pastoring the church. Because if, I have, if I'm an oasis, anybody can come to an oasis and get life. But if it's a dried up gulch, all I'm giving away is sand and cactus to people. Amen? One of the things Tom said he felt real guilty about, especially in the early days, was... Hold on, we're not talking about my problem. Yeah, we are. Was, when do you pray enough? What is enough? When is re- how much Bible reading is enough? There isn't written down anywhere how much time you should spend reading your Bible as a pastor. There isn't written down anywhere how much time you should spend praying every day or visiting the sick every day. And so it's, it's difficult to know sort of how to do that. And that's where getting close to other pastors and and seeing how they live their lives and so forth, you know, you, you can kind of learn from one another. Um, but it is a really odd kind of job. It's a very strange job without set hours. Or, yeah, it just, I, I don't know, you try to describe it to people. Well, what do you do? Well, we talk to people a lot, you know, but um, it, I don't know. It's just how, do they, how do they work it into also having a job and also working? Yes. And- so that's what I think most people are. Yeah. It, um, I know for me, it was really difficult because I felt like I gave my best at my paid job when I was working. Because you're paid to do that. You know, you're paid to, to think and to finish tasks and things like that. And so a lot of times for me, I found, I, especially as I got, was getting older, just the energy level. You know, I couldn't stay up till 10 o'clock knowing I had to get up at 5:45 the next day it was really difficult I would start winding down about nine o'clock you know in the evening when we would go out and see people but it's it's learning how you function best you know knowing kind of when you're best in the day and so forth and just kind of keeping it balanced that you make sure that your priorities with your family. I was gonna say too, for us, now that our children are grown, many times, like we're out more at night now, but yet we might have a morning set aside or three mornings or two mornings set aside where we're together or an afternoon. Um, But I believe if you look at, at what you have to do with your paid job and what you have with your family, and if you have the mindset of, God, how, am, how can I do this? You know, what is, what is your schedule for me? I believe he'll give you keys to unlock it so that you can live to the fullest potential. Yep. 
missing not only your time, but also who specific are, am, I, am I to invest into? And to go to the Father and say, okay, I have these three people who are uh, asking for my time, but I really feel like God wants me to invest time into this man. And it's listening to the Holy Spirit. You only have so many hours. And this is the priority that Jesus has told me to. And it's not at the uh, expense of these people. I don't want to push people away. But Jesus went to certain towns at certain times. Well, what about all the other towns? Well, this is where I'm supposed to go this day. I may be able to help those people on a different day, but this is where I'm supposed to be. So it's listening to the Spirit and not feeling guilty. But really, if you're a, if you're a shepherd, you just want to love people. But you have to ask him, where should I be investing my time? And, and one of the things I want to just touch on just for a second also, and, and again, this is a new thing from, that we picked up from Danny Silk um, that's absolutely probably revolutionized how we do what we do is to look for the gold. And that's a very common phrase. Anybody ever heard that phrase, look for the gold in people and not focus on the dirt? Um, I was a professional dirt miner. Um, I will find your dirt. I was very gifted at it. It's like a bloodhound. Um, and I could spend weeks focusing on the dirt. And, there's, and I, may, I may actually speak about it tomorrow morning. Um, I don't know. But it's, I love the story uh, in Judges 6 out of Gideon. Gideon is a whiner. He's in the wrong place. Bad things are happening. And he's just like a little four-year-old just whining in the wine press. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and doesn't say, you mopey little whiner. Eeyore, get out of the wine press. The angel of the Lord comes and tells him, you mighty valiant warrior. Wow. Nobody sees one. Gideon doesn't even see one. But God tells him what he is, not his failure. And, then he, and, then he, and so then Gideon, I'm not this, I'm not this, why all this? No, I mean, it's more Eeyore talk, more mule. And it's just, it's ugly and it's nasty. And then the angel says, go in the strength you have. Well, I don't see any strength as I read the story. Where's the strength? But heaven looks and sees what he is, not his failures in the moment, because he was clearly failing in the moment. And as a shepherd, am I completely focused on the, the, the one little spot on the carpet, or can I see a beautiful house? Can I see the amazing things that are inside of people and is to address those things and call those things out? Because as we walk closer to Jesus, the dirt will be left behind. I believe it with all of my, all of my heart. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were professional dirt finders. And Jesus came with just the opposite. He said, you, sir, Peter, the keys to the kingdom, I will build my church through you. And you're like, Peter of all people? No, Jesus, not Peter. I can chronicle all the mistakes Peter made and that are labeled right there in the scripture. You do not want to call Peter the head of this thing in any way. He's actually going to deny you Jesus three times. It's going to get ugly. Just don't do that. Wrong choice. But Jesus can see what Peter is going to be, not his failures of the moment. And as a shepherd, can I do that? I will keep people small if all I do is talk about their problems. We're called to make people powerful and believe in them. And that's constantly what happens in the Bible. Amen. What are they called to be? Who are they called to be? 
and move them towards it. It is so important. So I want to touch on a couple of things. I want to answer one of, one of the questions um, that was posed here. I just want to talk just for a second on confidentiality. As a shepherd, as a pastor, people are probably going to tell you things that are secrets of the heart, that are dark, that are issues. Can I just tell you one of the most horrific things that you can be is a gossip and a shepherd. I told a joke a few weeks ago. I don't have enough time to tell it this morning. Oh, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> three guys out on a boat, and I'll, I'll mess the, you probably some of you heard the story. Three guys on the boat, and they just got, off, got out of church, and the pastor's challenging them to be vulnerable. So the first guy says, oh, I'm an accountant, and I've been stealing from people for so many times and taking advantage of people, and I feel so bad. And I just, brothers, I just want to just, I just, I just want to confess to you. And the second guy, you know, he's, uh, he's, a lawyer, and he's twisting the truth, and he's just being just being a horrendous person. I, I know I'm I'm lying. I'm being de devious. I'm twisting the law. It's just wrong, and I feel so bad about it, you know. And so the third guy, what, what's your issue? And he says, "Well, I'm a gossip, and I can't wait to get out of the boat." <laughs> and <laughs> you've heard different versions of this story. <laughs> it's, uh, people are trusting you with their heart. When is the last time Jesus ever spilled all your news all over town, all your private issues? If you are a gossip, please don't ever spend time with people. Or repent and change. And ask somebody, help me. Because, you know, and it's that, it's that person. Here's the thing I have found with people. As soon as I find out you're telling me about Josh and all his issues, I am never going to trust you with anything in my life. Because if you're telling me his junk, you know what you're going to do with my junk? You're going to tell Josh and everybody else. Yeah. A shepherd is measured. A shepherd is confidential. A shepherd can weigh and hold other people's stuff, if you will. It is absolutely so important. And can I just say this on that? Never, ever, ever promise people confidentiality who ask for it. I'm going to explain that in just a second, a situation. Somebody comes to you, Emma. Aishka. Aishka, I knew that. Aishka, I was going to guess that. I sensed it. Aishka. I'm really good with that stuff, really good. Aishka, yes. Emma. Aishka comes to you and says, I have this horrible sin, horrible, horrible, horrible. You, I need to talk to somebody. Will you promise not to tell anybody about it? Many, many people say, well, sure, you know, I'm, I'm confidential. Wrong. What if she tells you that she's an abusive person and she's abusing people? You just promise confidentiality to someone. This is what you can do. I actually probably should use your husband, Tanishka, because you would never do that stuff. No. But here's, let's just, all right, let's do this. Yeah, sweet people over there. Not, not that there's not sweet people over here. All right, here's, here's the story. Here's the story. We went, we went into pastor church, brand new into the church, and um, we became aware of a situation where a woman got cervical cancer, and it was through, I think it was the HPV virus is what happened. And so 
she got cancer, surgeries. It, it was just horrific what was happening to her. And what we found out was, to our pain, that two years before, at a men's conference, a man came forward in a prayer line. There's a prayer line up front, and a man came forward. And the man went to the counselor, the man praying at the front. The guy came and said, I have something I need to confess to you, but you must swear confidentiality. You can't ever tell anyone. So the guy at the front was kind of new and didn't know, and he said, sure, I'll give you confidentiality. I'll, I'll never tell a soul. And so the man confessed that he was sleeping with prostitutes. He was married, sleeping with prostitutes on a regular basis, had no idea how many, but he just felt bad about it. And he just wanted to confess. So the man went back, sat down. Well, the person had sworn confidentiality, I'll never tell a soul, and that's what the guy asked him to do. And the man who confessed that continued sleeping with prostitutes, and eventually his wife got cervical cancer from the HPV virus. And I'm the pastor of that couple where the wife has cervical cancer. And I found out that 18 months before, two years before, the man had confessed to a man in another church who I knew also. He actually knew about it and was sitting on this for two years. And so the wife ended up with cancer because of a sexually transmitted disease. And the guy sat on it for two years because he'd promised confidentiality. Really sober story. I don't ever promise. I've had people uh, confess to me they've abused children. I've had somebody confess to me they've murdered someone. And what I tell people now is somebody says, we don't ever tell, promise confidential. Will you promise? I can't do that, sir. Typically, I'll pick a guy. I can't do that, sir. If it involves the police or an authority figure, I can't promise you confidentiality. But if it's not something like that, no one will know outside this room. It's me and you. Our, our, what you tell me and, and the issues of your heart will remain in this room. I am completely airtight confidential. confidential. But if it involves the authorities and the police, I have no right to promise confidentiality to anyone. So I just as a prerequisite to people, it's the first thing. I just need to tell you, but you can't promise never to tell anybody. Whoa, stop right there. Does that make sense? It's so important, especially as a pastor, because you are going, a pastoral person, you're going to hear things that will shock you and <laughs> just encourage you. One of the things, too, is you can't react when people tell you stuff. It's like, I've had people do that. <laughs> just like, inform your face. I'm going to remain unmoved. Hmm. Hmm. It, here's the pastoral look. Hmm. <laughs> On the inside, you're going, oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? I knew it. Hmm. And then you slightly purse your lips. Hmm. It communicates something to people. It's, it's so difficult at times to... Okay, uh, here's a question that was mentioned earlier. Um, accepting and blessing. How does... Randy, I can't read your writing, sweet pie. <laughs> I knew it. I don't have Is my glasses on. No. Accepting and blessing. 
how does that relate to mentoring? Like if people, how do we accept Who asked that question? Anybody remember? Did you ask that question? Yes, sir. Could you uh, elaborate on your question a bit? Because it says, when my wife wrote, is accepting and blessing, how does that relate to mentoring? Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. I believe discipling is the goal. You know, we're supposed to disciple nations. We're just supposed to, to not make converts, but, but to make disciples. Discipling is so important. And you can see the best example of it is obviously Jesus with his disciples. And he corrected them. He adjusted them. He challenged them. He rebuked them. But I believe that was probably the exception. Most of the time he spent time with them and loved them and blessed them and taught them and built with them. But in discipling with people, to me, the essence of a discipleship relationship that I find in scripture is a friendship. And it may, it may have like a father-son or a mother-daughter aspect to it, depending on the age. Um, but it, it's everything that I try and do personally and 95% of the time is based out of relationship with someone. And, and if it comes down to correcting, there's a scripture that says, speak the truth in love. Everyone was familiar with that? Speak the truth in love. What I found many times with people is people love to speak the truth. That's not what the scripture says. If I'm going to address a, in a mentoring, discipling relationship, I'm going to speak the truth in love. Not love to adjust everyone. Love to hammer everybody. Love to uh, correct everyone. But to me, discipling is born out of relationship. Discipling is born out of friendship. And discipling is born out of them trusting me to speak into their life. I don't, I don't presume to speak into people's lives. Now, if it's an adultery situation or an abuse situation, absolutely I will take the initiative. But in a discipling relationship, for me personally, and every pastor is different. We can talk about that in a minute, different different um, giftings within pastoring, I, I only speak into the depth of a relationship that someone allows me or asks me. Does that, does that make sense? And does that answer at all your question? Maybe or not really. Okay. Yes, and I think that's what Jesus, Jesus went up to the mountaintop, heard from the Lord whose disciples were to be, and then went down and actually said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. I have people semi-regularly ask me, will you disciple me? And um, I think it's foolish of me to immediately say yes, unless I already know, the, you know I, the Lord has spoken to me. It's a very flattering thing when someone says, will you mentor me? Will you disciple me? Will you brother me or father me? It's a very flattering thing. And I find it's a, it's a very dangerous thing if the Lord hasn't actually called me to do that. Because here's the thing. What if Liam? What if Liam is supposed to be investing into your life and not me? Because Liam has a unique set of skills and giftings and unique perspective on life that he's actually the one who should be discipling you and not me. But if I just presume because you asked me, I'm not only going to waste your time, I'm going to waste my time, and you're not going to become the man of God you should be. And so 
for, and I, I, an example of that is this. We had a, a gentleman in St. Louis, one of the most gifted people I've come across in years. And he became a free agent. He left his church. And I love this guy. I spent lots of time with him. Uh, just insanely gifted. He will be preaching to thousands. He's already preached to thousands in his work. He'll be preaching to thousands in ministry in the years to come. He is amazingly talented. And I went to him and I said, Floyd? That's a made-up name. Because um, Floyd, Floyd had asked me what, he, what I thought he should do. And it was so easy. Floyd, you should come to my church because you're insanely gifted. And I would prayed. And so, and I kind of had a discipling relationship with this gentleman, even though he was in another church. I was careful with boundaries. But he left that church. And I told him, actually, Floyd, there's a New Frontiers church in town. And a friend of mine named Brian Mowry is the pastor. And I believe with all of my heart that you should go and be part of that church and serve in there. Because there's things inside of Brian that are going to uniquely be called out of you that I can't help. I can't. I can't bring all that gold out of you. You're, the gifting inside of you is so uniquely suited to that man's ministry and that man's gifting. Um, so I would love for you to come to, the, to our church. We actually need your evangelistic gift desperately in our church, but actually you're more well-suited. I just believe in God you should be with that man. And the pastor called me, are you insane? What's wrong with you? Because I've sent a few people to his church. But he has a unique set of skills, and it's the ability to understand, I'm not the best person for everybody. And it takes a, 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 a shepherd to see, what's the best pasture for you? And that pasture isn't my pasture as much as I want. It's easy to send the problem people away. But can you send the gifted people to someone who can uniquely call out of them what's inside of them? And so it's not so amazing when you see him being raised up in another church and leading loads of people to Jesus and soon to be, oh, yeah, Jesus, help me. But, it, but it's just, it's, it's wanting to see the best in someone else, even if it doesn't help me. And, it, and it's so challenging. So in that discipling thing, it's so flattering when people say, can you disciple me? Can I pray first? Rather than be flattered. Why do I have a I have an opening right now? <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to have three and one just left there. So you'll make the perfect third. Jesus, I'm gonna go up to the mountaintop and ask the Father who my disciples should be. It's it's so important in pastoring and mentoring. Again, that may not have answered your question fully. Okay, but I like the point. <laughs> um, uh, how do you support your spouse? When you have same or different giftings, how, this is a question that was asked earlier. How do you support your spouse when you have same or different giftings? Fee, you want to take a step at that one? I mean, she's been over there like, why aren't you calling on me? Hello, I'm important. No, she hadn't said that one time. Do you want to take a shot? You don't have to if you don't want to. Randy, you know, you guys can tag team this one. Okay, yeah. You weren't paying attention, were you, Pastor? <laughs> how, do you, how do you support your spouse? How do you support your spouse when you have some, the same or different giftings? How do you support this person when either uniquely the same or uniquely different? Did you ask this question? I knew it was a front row. Car. Yeah. Okay. Address it to Kara. Look in okay. her eyes. Okay. 
I'm going to address this to married women, okay? We do a lot of marriage conferences, and one of the things that we feel very big on are the love languages. And you need to find out your spouse's love language and how to keep that love tank filled, whatever that may be, okay? <laughs> so it's knowing your spouse, knowing what they need to uh, feel loved. You know, it seems like in our experience, physical touch is usually the number one for the man or number one and a half and maybe number two. But one of, one of the things, and I apologize to any single people, one of the things that the way that I can fully release my husband, that just something I can do on top of praying for him and being kind to him and so forth, is whatever that love language is, that I overwhelm him in that language. Okay, does that make sense? For me, it's acts of service. We have something in the United States called mulch. Do you know what mulch is? It goes around trees. Okay. So if I pull up my hill and I see my house and there's fresh mulch laid, oh my gosh, I will do anything for that man. I love... We have a lot of mulch in our house. If I open up the garage door and the garage is clean and swept out, oh my gosh. I love this man. But what my point is, is knowing how your spouse is made, knowing what really fills them up and makes them feel loved, I can, it's just something very practical I can do to help him to, to live to all of his potential. It's so easy for me to do that and to give myself to him that way. And I don't know. I, I just think that's a, a huge way. As you know how your spouse is made, just overwhelm them in whatever they need to feel loved, and it just releases them to do whatever, whatever else. He tells me all the time, I could not do what I do and minister how I do if you didn't treat me the way you do. And that makes me feel great. Because you know what? I'm going to have to answer to Jesus for how I treated his son. And I want, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Did that answer? No. Did that answer at all? Okay. Anything else to follow up on that? Oh. See, I knew it. Um, There's discernment. Oh, there's so much I could say, um, but I will say something really simple. Um, we were talking about headship. We've talked about that before in the Garden of Eden and, you know, the river, how it breaks off into the forehead waters, but the whole meaning of headship being empowering. And I think just in being together for Dan and I, we're so different in our gift sets. And through the years of ministering together, I think it's just been at peace with knowing, okay, what's needed right now? Like we talk about the most important gift is the one that's needed at that moment. And we functioned like that for years. So, um, when we started the church in St. Charles, we, before we even started the church, the only instruction we had from the Lord was gather the people through worship. And of course, I happened to be able to sing and play guitar, so we gathered people and worshiped God, and the, a lot of that onus was on me. And the prophetic words that came at the time were like, 
who is Fifi? Who is Fifi? And I'm in some crowd, and I'm, well, it's obviously me. And, they, and it was a prophetic word about people are waiting for you there. You know, it was all the beginnings of a church, but it was on me. And, like, I'm, I'm not really that much of a speaker. Like, I can sing. And so, but Dan recognized it at the time, and I led a lot of worship, and, and we gathered, and we gathered, and we gathered, and before long, there was a lot of people, and we were a gathering of people worshiping God. But even in our gifting now, with Dan's Dan being pulled to other congregations and, you know, to oversee and to care for and to empower and, you know, he's, he can see the gifting in people. I'm quite happy to support him and empower him in that. And we have three kids that need schooling and so I'm homeschooling them. So in a really simple way, I think it's just recognizing the season we're in, isn't it? And as couples, we're together. We're all important. What we bring is valuable, but it's empowering each other to do what's needed in that moment. And I'm totally cool with that. Oh, yeah. So um, when we first got married, um, one of the greatest bits of advice I had was from um, our friend Paul Barker. You guys have met Paul and Alita. And he said... Uh, recognizing the differences that I run at like not meta not real run I am a runner but you know yeah he likes to stop and have a sandwich (laughs) 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 that was your joke you said that (laughs) just kidding JK um no but it just like my personality is quite laid back I've always been really laid back so I kind of run at a slower pace. I'm not that bothered, you know. But Dan is a, he's, he can do a lot. He can spin a lot of plates. And so the advice was, Fee will run at maybe 50 miles an hour and you're running at 100. Don't try and rush her. And Fee, don't nag him to slow him down. But meet in the middle. Find a rhythm. You say it better than me, won't you say it? <laughs> so I think it's just recognizing in marriages and gift couples where you know, what's needed at the time. Does that make sense? Um, Just two real quick things. I'm going to turn it over to Dan. Um, And and shepherding people is, I just want to encourage you, it's so easy to pick up an offense that someone else has as they offload onto you. Um, And what we've found many, many times is this. uh, Tony... Uh, is now meeting with someone who just came from Josh's small group. Um, He's got a men's group. And Josh missed three phone calls, missed an appointment. He was busy. He was overseas again and doesn't care about poor Ed. And so Ed comes to Tony and says, well, you know, Josh, I mean, mean, everybody loves him. Oh, he's he's, he's good. He's cool. He wears a nice beard. But... He doesn't, doesn't listen to me, doesn't call me back. He wears a cool hat. Um, I just, you know, and then all of a sudden Tony's like, he doesn't call you back? Well, and on the inside he's actually thinking, well, actually, come to think of the last time he didn't call me back either. I'm not sure this Josh guy, I'm not sure about this Josh guy. And it's so easy as a shepherd to hear other people's problems and then you end up taking an offense towards other people. It's not okay. If you have a problem with someone, it's not okay. What you should do, Tony, and I know you would, is say, Ed, have you gone back and actually, well, I can't get back to him because he won't return my phone call. Does he have a text? Does he have an email? You know, you must 
Matthew 18, go to your brother, explain the, the difficulty. So often as a pastor, as a shepherd, you're carrying everyone else's junk and you feel good because people are trusting you with their, their lives and it feels so good. People think you're amazing and all you're doing is a 5,000 pounds of offense. You don't like Dan, you don't like Fee, you don't like Tony, you don't like Josh. Oh, and that lady, she just drives me nuts. I would, she just thinks she's the best worship leader. And it's so, the, the church can be, if not dealing with situations, Matthew 18, it becomes just a, a breeding ground for ugliness and harboring issues. And many times I found people with a shepherding gift are the people weighing those things down because we don't handle issues biblically. It's to send that person back to Josh, back to Tony, back to Fee and say, you know what, and I'm going to follow up. Have you talked to Fee yet? Because if you haven't talked to Fee, I'm actually going to let Fee know that you're going to be calling her because there's an issue there. It's amazing how quick issues get sorted out in the, when you actually hold people accountable. Does that make sense? It's so, it's so important. Um, last thing, priorities of the work of the pastor is to identifying the gifting of the pastor. One of the difficulties that I have found is People expect every pastor to be the same, do the same. You should be, you know, can I just say this for myself? Uh, I pastored, we pastored several different churches, and we are relational, we meet with people, we have, we have tea and scones. We have biscuits and crisps, and we do all those pastoral stuff. And maybe the guy, the couple following us, doesn't have my gifting. Well, you don't do it like Tom. Well, where does the Bible say that every shepherd has to be exactly the same? It's wrong expectations. Well, you, if you were a shepherd, you'd be meeting in my house and you'd be having coffee with me and tea and you'd know if I like two lumps or one lump of sugar in my coffee because the previous pastor was that way. It's incredibly, it's, it is unjust to expect somebody else to be exact same pastor as the other guy. But different preachers are different, whether they're teachers, whether they're pastors, shepherds, whether people have apostolic giftings. There's so many different types of apostles, so many different types of prophetic, whether they're a teaching prophet or a proclamation prophet or a declaration where they're going to a city like Jonah. There's so many different sorts. And everybody thinks every pastor has to be the same. Wrong. How in the world could that be? Do you think everyone was like Peter? Do you think everyone was like Paul? Do you think everyone was like John? Even the disciples, completely different people, completely different giftings, and I, I'm holding people hostage to somebody else or my impression. It's, it's not fair. Does that make sense? Yeah, Mr. Reynolds. Thank you, sir. Really good. That was good, wasn't it? Do you have to Tom? Really good. We just got a few more moments till one o'clock, and I just wanted to have some uh, a little bit more opportunity for feedback, and also to grill Tom and Randy a little bit more. <laughs> you know, it's often in the little um, the side trails that you find so much gold and practical information. But um, I know there's a couple of questions that didn't get answered, so I'm going to make a couple of statements, and I think from this um, they may be helpful for perhaps some of the questions that um, need to be answered. But these are most of these are never do this, okay? So never, we must never find our identity in what we do, but who we are. And to answer Aisha's question, if we 
pastoring, shepherding is not just something that we do, but it's who we are. So you'll know if you're a pastor, if the things that Tom and Randy have talked about today, every string in your heart's going, that's me. I, and it, I just, I feel like that is the instrument that I am. And today I've just been taught to play it a little bit better. <laughs> I've been, been taught how to use the strings and play the strings a little bit better. It's been, I felt someone's helped fine tune the instrument that God has made me to be. So never find our identity in what we do, but in who we are. The second is never find your identity in the need to be needed. And I think this, so many of these things come back down to our relationship with the Lord, um, that knowing who we are, that we're secure, because if you find your identity in your, the need to be needed, then your pastoring will be all really about you and your own validation. And finding your identity in the need to be needed is very, very dangerous. And the biggest problem is that it will stop us from plugging people into Jesus and instead we'll plug them into ourselves. So in, the, in America, and I'm sure it's similar here with um, some of these things, but uh, maybe not so much because of the national, national health, but in the States, because everything's private, it's, things are run, medical the medical uh, industry is run by, but is driven by money. Um, and if you go to a chiropractor, which I did once, they will charge you 120 bucks to give you an x-ray, and then they will tell you, can you see what's wrong with your spine? You're going to need, this is going to take a long time to get, fix this out, this problem. I thought, I don't remember there being a problem with my back. My back's fine. Never been in a car accident, never been. And so but they will then try and lull you into this place that if you've if security in them, that if we keep coming back for a certain fee every month, that over the next few years, you, you could get straightened out. But of course, if you don't, you could end up in a wheelchair. And you're like, oh. <laughs> and so often we can we can do that um, in shepherding. We can pull people into ourself because of a need to be needed, which is actually an identity issue, rather than plugging people into Jesus. Does that make sense? So I would just say that that's really important. Um, and one of the ways that we can solve that is by giving people to things to do, those boundary things, um, asking people questions, but in it all that we teach people to self-feed. That when people come to us, we're not always just feeding them. And I've said this to, I think in Leadership Lab, if we, if as shepherds, we don't go to the great shepherd to be fed ourselves, and we're always feeding to feed others, the people will actually be better fed than we are. And the shepherds end up malnourished because all they're feeding is just, is actually to feed someone else, not themselves. But it's really important that we feed ourselves and teach people to self-feed. Teach people how to read the Word of God. Teach people how to dig for gold in other people. How to serve. How to take their eyes off themselves. Give them something to do like Jesus did with the rich young ruler. But, but most of all, plug them into Jesus, not into you. Plug them into Jesus, not into you. 
don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of the need to be needed. I need you to need me. It's so unhealthy. You see marriages when people meet out of the need to be needed. I love this person, but really, no, you just love the fact that they need you. Can you see what I'm saying? It's very, but it's, the marriage is the, is, the, is the coming together of two really, really healthy people, not one person leaning on the other. And actually this person, it's just an identity issue. I really need you to need me. And that causes all kinds of problems. And I just, uh, just this is the other just uh, little thing to give away. is when you meet with people, if you're pastoring, shepherding people, you're meeting people, put a time limit on. I think this is going back to the boundary thing. Rather than, yeah, let's just spend the day together. If you've got a day, great. But often you'll find their time a lot more productive. Say, could we meet for an hour? Could we meet for... Um, an hour and a half. Another thing, which is very practical, is I'll, off, I'll often ask people, hey, is there anything specific that you want to get together about, or is it just to hang out? Um, because if it's just to hang out, great, at least you know the purpose of the meeting. Oh, yeah, we're going to go to the movies together. That's great. Come over for dinner. Just come and hang out. But hey, is there something specific? Otherwise, <laughs> those who do a lot of pastoring, um, you meet with them and you have a wonderful hour or two or three or an evening. And right at the end, they go, by the way, I just wanted to talk to you about this. And they go, Bleh! and it's you're like, oh my gosh, we've been here for two hours. And in the last two minutes, you throw that on and you're walking out the door and I've got to go. And it's like, maybe we should do this again next week. <laughs> and you're like, ah, now I'm just backed up. And there's so many other people you want to see. These are just really, really practical things. But if you ask, sometimes I'll say, hey, can we make an agenda? And it sounds very official, but you can do it in a very organic way. Hey, is there anything specific you want to talk about? No, I just want to hang out. Great. Let's hang out. How are you doing? But if there's something specific, get, you can almost clock it right in the first few minutes. It's like, ah, Let's, let's talk about those things right now. Is that helpful? Um, you know, Proverbs says this, a man is a deep well. It takes a man of understanding to draw him out. You know, sometimes the we, we're the deep well and sometimes we're the man of, man of understanding. We can both be both. And that means that you, when you look, when you're with somebody, you see them as a deep well and then ask the Holy Spirit, how can I get the gold out of this deep well out of them? And sometimes it's the other way around that you're the deep well, and they're the man of understanding. And therefore, you can go to them, especially if they're discipling you or there's something, and help get them, help them get the, the, the gold out of you. And that's why I get them max, maximize the time. When I'm with people, I'll ask them, hey, can, um, speak into my life. Give me three things right now I can get better at because I'm, I'm wanting to, to draw out what's in him in here so I'm maximizing their ability to do that Does that makes sense so do that when you sometimes when you're with people and you're you've got a specific agenda learn how to get the most out of them ask them questions and go loaded with questions so that you can get it out rather than just I'm not talking about wasting their time this isn't some well who do you think you are but valuing their time and honoring their time rather than just yeah you know it's just everything's great and you're just talking about just stuff and thinking and they're they're on the clock you know they've just got they've only got so many hours in a day but learn how to maximize it and it honors them and honestly it gets you'll get the most out of the time does that make sense all right brilliant um any let's have some any any questions uh, first of all yes Yeah.
Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I, I think that's really, really good. I think um, um, it's like the anointing. People say, oh, that person's so anointed. It's like, at what? For what? What have they been anointed for? Are they anointed? And just being specific. So if someone's a leader, you're a person of influence. Over who? Over who? I think it's John Maxwell that says, if you, you know you're a leader, if you're if you look over your shoulder and there's someone following you, if there's not, then you're just going for a walk. <laughs> so leadership is not an event, it's not a title, it's a process um, and it's influence and you'll know the sphere of your leadership by the measure of your influence. So I think um, that, Tom, you want to answer, answer that question? Okay. <laughs> oh, come on. I would say, you know, I have people, I have had people just recently in the church and say, says, they announced to me they're an apostle. Okay, you know, you're 19 years old, you don't have a job, you're fighting with your parents, you live in the basement, you have no money, and you're always asking for help. And yet you're an apostle. I'm, okay, m maybe. I don't know, but what, and again, it gets back to the thing, not finding your identity and your gifting. Well, why, why is that, what, you know, who you think you are? You know, it, it's, it's getting people into reality let's just do this, let's just get to a place where you clean your room, because that's your parents who are in the church telling me, well, how do I deal with this apostle kid, you know? Um, how do I get my young apostle to clean his room? You know, my young apostle son won't read his Bible. My young apostle son is fighting with his sister, you know, and calling her names, you know, and our young apostle needs some help. And so, it's just getting people into reality, and, and, and again, I think as in our church, if we Again, continue to de-emphasize gifting and emphasize who they are, you know. And, and I think it's, it's just what Daniel said is it's, it's so important. That's why I, I don't, in our church in, in St. Louis, uh, I encourage people not to call me pastor. I'm Tom. This is Randy. You know, I, I am a pastor, but, you know, anything I sign is never Pastor Tom. I would introduce myself as Pastor Tom. My identity, I'm Tom. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a grandpa, I'm a dad of four kids, and I, I love people, and I love sports, I love lots of, do, but it's to de-emphasize the gift, and I think that'll help people not worry about, you know, I'm a leader. And, and, it's, and it's part of the, I know it's part of the culture that Dan has brought, and I believe, you know, obviously he was back, you know, way back when with his dad with Peter and Barbie, just healthy, healthy, healthy church, and it's all about Jesus and, and building him into him rather than my, the letter on my jersey, apostle, pastor, whatever. Yeah, brilliant. I think that's great. <laughs> Fergus, that's so, it's so true. Um, yeah. Anyone else? Emma. Are you listening, Tom? Yeah. 
What? <laughs> he was listening. That's a really good question. What? I'll, I'll, I'll tag onto what you say. Okay. The, the, the end? Just say the end. <laughs> no, it's a really good question. I think what was the, if you were discipling them, did, have you accomplished your mission? What you saw in them, that vision for their life, did it, has it come to end? Also, have you taken them as, as far as that you can? You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's a life, a life coach in the church here, and they were talking about somebody that they've been coaching um, in the States. Um, and I said, oh, how's that going? They said, just this week. He said, actually, they said, today, I talked to them and I said, I feel like you've done, you've really come a long way and you don't need to meet, you don't need me, we don't need this kind of um, weekly interaction anymore. Oh, that was great. Yeah. And so you're actually saying it in a really encouraging way. We don't need that this way. Of course, if they do and you're just worn out and you just want to get rid of them, that's different. But you would never think that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I, I, I think how you, how you answer that is essential so they don't feel dropped or useless. Just ask them, and I would probably ask them, go back to questions. What is it, you know, what Daniel's brilliant, what did you get out of this? What, what did you glean from this? And it's somebody to ask somebody, what do you feel like, what have you learned from our relationship? What have you learned from our time together? Bing, bing, bing. And they say, okay, what else? Is there anything else that you, you know, look for that? And they say, because I know, uh, and this is what I talk about Dan, it was on my notes, don't build people into myself, build them into Jesus. And one of the other things I do with people is I try and get multiple people building into whoever I'm discipling, because it, it, it's really, really healthy. It's just, you know, I want, I want Liam speaking in this person. I want Pete speaking in this person as well as me. And sometimes it's easier to step back. If, I'm the only, if I pulled them into myself, now they're going to feel dropped if I'm the only person speaking to their life. So ongoing, encourage them. You know what I want you to do? I want you, I want you to meet with Pete. I want you to meet with Liam. I want you to meet with Chris. And it, and it keeps it feathered out and not into me and built into him. So I'm not saying it's easy to drop them, but it's just what else can I help you with? Most of the time people can't, they don't know. Say, well, you know what, that's okay. Why don't you ask Pete? You know, why don't you go ask Liam? I, there's other people in his body who can help you also. I so appreciate you and love you. And, yeah. and then turn over to Dan. <laughs> One more question. Should we let Josh do the last question? It's better be, it's better be a great question. It's an amazing question. <laughs> He's so humble, isn't he? <laughs> Good. Uh, she, my wife actually answered, we, we uh, when we were paid by the church or when we were actually investing into people, it was probably when, in our early 20s, 20, 21, 22, um, we just loved people, we would have people over at our house, um, and just, uh, I, I, I think it was just the anointing, we've always had people that we were just loving and blessing and encouraging. And what we did was we served in every capacity that we could. If there's need in the children's church, we're in. If you need somebody to do evangelism, first time follow-up, guest book, we just volunteered everywhere um, without worrying about what my gifting is, which kind of gets almost back to how do you know a pastor. We just did everything that would bless someone else and uh, just loved on people. We went, I was probably 28, 29 before I actually led a church. Um, went to school. I, I had a business. I worked for an insurance agency. Um, 
you know, in my early 20s and whatnot, and then it's kind of a career change to go into this, but it was actually what I was, we were meant to do. But w you could see the, lots of people, um, I think, saw it. They were just smart enough not to tell us in our early 20s. Um, just let us just naturally grow and mold into it, so. We were in a ministry where you had to be perfect, and I would tell myself, nobody's perfect, they're not perfect, and just be yourself. Yeah. I, I would say, um, it comes back to the thing I I'm, I'm made earlier about the point that Daniel spoke in my life 18 to 24 months ago, was stop worrying what everyone else thinks about you, just be you. Be confident in who you are. Um, it just would have just dropped so much junk, expectation, worried about what the pastor or the apostle's thinking. Just be secure, Tom, in who you are. You don't have, the only, the only person you have to worry about is Jesus, and he thinks you're great. So good. I have nothing to add. They were, that was some, that was a, that was two strong right hooks right there. I have nothing else to say. Hands up if you're blessed by Tom and Randy. So good. Tom and Randy, thank you so much. Really, really good. Okay. Love it. We're going to hear from uh, Tom and Randy again in the morning. But church, I just want to say this. When the full five-fold ministry is all flowing in a house... It really is like heaven on earth <laughs> in its truest form it's like heaven on earth because it's the conduits of heaven working together seeing this beautiful picture and you can already feel it you just feel the anointing in the room just just hearts just for the whole thing of shepherding and for the shepherds, and I'm sure m you all of us here in this room are here by virtue of the fact that we believe, hey, I want to know more about this instrument. I want to know more about this gift because that's me. I'm like that. I love people, and I want to know how to love them better. But the same is true with the prophetic. The same is true with, with the evangelistic. You know, tomorrow night we're going to have Yinka coming. I don't know if he's evangelist or not. But, when you, but it's not all about one thing, and these are just fivefold. But they're so important to the building of the house. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Can we have Tom and Randy? Can you come and pray? Both of you just, just, just all stand up and let's have Tom and Randy. Just put your hands out and just uh, in a posture just to receive. And um, I'm going to have them pray. Just so you know, and also, and just praying this afternoon for people who are sick um, in the church, that health would come and life would come. No, Julie, she had got back from the Philippines, still not 100%, so please be praying for them. But Tom and Randy, pray us out, will you? Father God, we just thank you so much for whenever we're together, you're here with us, and we just want to say thank you for this incredible life that you've given us. You overwhelm us with your goodness, and you overtake us with your blessings. And I thank you, God, that you put in the heart of each of us just a love for your people, your great people. There's no other place that we'd rather be, and we just truly want to see heaven here in the church, here on the earth, as we touch your people.
Father, we bless this church. We bless this church with healthy shepherds. Holy Spirit, that you would raise up your ministry, the shepherding, caring, loving people really, really well in this church, Father, that you would strengthen and encourage Holy Spirit, that you would blow on those seeds that are from heaven that you have placed there. Father, whether someone's 25 or 75, Father, we call those things to the surface now in Jesus' name, that those seeds of love, those seeds of kindness, of mercy and compassion would grow now under your anointing Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray there would be no competition, no comparing one to another. Father, that we would be mature and for each other, that we would honor one another, speak well of one another, bless one another, that kindness, like Boaz, kindness and blessing would be on our lips towards the people of God, Lord. That we wouldn't be professional fault finders, Father, but we would be gold finders. That we would focus on who people are and call them out into that. Father, we receive wisdom from heaven. We receive discernment from heaven to see what's inside of people uniquely. Lord, that from this day forward, this moment forward, that it would be spiritual eyes released in this room, that we could see the gift of God inside of people, that we could call into being what you've placed inside of people. Father, we, we speak security into this room, peace into this room, life into this room. Father, that we would shepherd, we would love as you have called us to love. Father, we release this gifting in this house, in this room. We release it in Jesus' name to love your people. Love your people the way you love them. Father, we receive from heaven impartation and gifting and release. We receive it. We thank you for it. Holy Spirit, you are a gift giver. And you only give good gifts. We receive now. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Amen.